You know, I'll tell you what, I think, I have a feeling that I've been in a slump since I left Saturday Night Live and that I'm going to come out of it. This is a personal feeling. It may be the feeling that, quote, critics have. Can you act? I think I can. Um, doing comedy, the kind of comedy that I do, is, can be very difficult. It's not easy. Many actors can't do what I do. So, I mean, the first thing I would say to can you act is, no, I can't act. But I can make a lot of people laugh, and I can perform. Hello, movie fans. Welcome to another episode of Not A Bond Podcast, the show where movies that bomb theatrically or just didn't get any love from the critics get a second chance. I'm one of your hosts, Troy, and with me is Mr. Brad Anderson. Brad, how are you doing this evening? Fantastic. Episode 32. Yes, we're just rolling along. And January, it, really, we use January as a month to kind of go through our email and social media and look at all the movies and uh, bombs that people have recommended. And we decided to sort of carve out this month and pick some of the more interesting ones that have been suggested. This week was my pick and I decided to go with a recommendation from a good friend uh, that does another podcast. And we thought this would be an interesting recommendation and pick because that podcast is doing another film from the same director. So tonight we're talking about Memoirs of an Invisible Man from 1992, directed by John Carpenter. And we are so lucky tonight because we get to have on our very own show, Josh Browning from the VH Files podcast. Josh, how are you this evening? I'm doing stupendous. How about you guys? Uh, awesome, man. I just got done finishing your um, I guess, roundtable discussion of 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter. Man, what a fantastic episode. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, I, not to toot my own horn about my episode, but <laughs> no, I, thought you were going the, I thought you were going the movie path there. I was going to go, yeah, that's a damn good movie. But the podcast, eh, it's all right. No, it's... Uh, no, the I, podcast was very good. I agree great. with Troy. Thank yeah, you. Thank you very much. That's a movie that is, you know, so much has been said about it. Uh, there, there are so many just fantastic critical reviews about it, uh, books on it, et cetera. The history is so fascinating. And you guys actually really brought not just your, your personal thoughts and opinions on it, but I love the fact that a lot of the questions that you had about the film were things just didn't exactly make sense. Mm -hmm. And of course, yep. you know, everybody's coming to the table and say, well, did you consider this? And, and like you, I was, okay, I'm, I think I'm convinced that totally makes sense now. Yeah. The thing is a movie that I was not super familiar with for the longest time. I was, I'm, I'm a big Halloween fan. If you were to ask me what my favorite Carpenter is, it would be Halloween and then the thing. Um, but the thing has been something that was a fairly recent development for me because I didn't watch it a lot when I was a kid. I got more into it as an adult and it, it's one of those movies. And it's funny as we were watching it to talk about it, I wrote down in my notes this movie has so many holes in it. It's like Swiss cheese. <laughs> but in bringing it to 
my podcast and all of us talking about it and actually talking through where this movie could go and what the possibilities were, it, it like by the end of the, I'm sure you heard at the end of our, our show, like by the end of the discussion, I was like, you guys have talked me into thinking that this is a water sound, like watertight movie. Like I, I couldn't find any holes in it after that because we just kind of talked over every possibility. It's a, it's such a smart movie and he, I'm, I'm talking about it like crazy because I can, like it's one of those movies that you could just talk hours about and never get tired of talking about it. Do you find it hard when you have like a movie that, pretty much everyone on the show loves and like just to kind of avoid the, Hey, remember this part? Hey, remember this part? <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you kind of get into that fanboy thing. I always find it kind of hard to talk about things I really love because it just turns into this, this gush fest, but I thought you all did a great job with the thing. And again, the thing I like about your all show is you kind of feel like you're there. Let's do some people just talk about movies, which is, you know, kind of the best part. So. I mean, that's really, uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit last time. We just wanted to get the feel. If you're, if you're hanging out at a video store talking about the movie you just watched that week and just everything that blew you away about it and what you, you know, what you liked and what you didn't like and you know, the good, the bad and the ugly, all of it. Like, um, and, and that's, that's something that I think is missing in society now. And, and it looks like podcasting is the way we're going to have to do it. So I'm, that's, that's what we're trying to do is just get it back out there any way we can. Well, in honor of that theme. So Again, I, I can't say this enough. Like Brad said, anytime I listen to that, because I'm almost done with this week's uh, episode, which is Tremors, but it does feel like you're perusing the video shelf back in the late 80s, early 90s, trying to find your favorite movie yeah. and just talking about the films that you've seen, you know, based on the box lock cover. So I have a question for both of you tonight, because I think this is very relevant considering we have Josh from the VH Files podcast. So today's technology, 4K, HDR, Dolby Vision, there are just some amazing things happening with film today. One of my favorite things is Dolby Atmos. I will take anything with the Dolby Atmos soundtrack uh, for my setup, more so than 4K uh, in a lot of regards. But I, I have a question for both of you. With, with all of this technology, which film would you prefer to watch on VHS rather than something like 4K, Blu-ray, uh, or or 4K streaming, Brad. I'll, I'll start with you. Do you do you know? It's funny because Josh is wearing the shirt of my answer, and it's Halloween. Um, there's just something about that grimy, dirty slasher film that feels better watching it on VHS, and that's how I watched it for the first probably 15 years of my life until I got it on DVD, and then I got it on Blu-ray, and then now you know even the 4K Blu-ray that just came out a little while ago. I mean, I love it, but I will keep a VCR so I can watch Halloween on VHS. That's a great answer. Another John Carpenter film. So yes. Josh, do you have a pick? Well, I mean, mine was, I don't have a movie per se. So if you look behind me in my little camera setup here, you can see that I do have a TV uh, with a VCR in it. Mm -hmm. I have something so I can watch VHSs. And one in particular that has never gotten, not even a DVD release, um, and something that I loved as a child and continue to watch to this day, I have the VHS in the other room still, is Michael Jackson's The Making of Thriller. Oh, okay. Um, when I was a kid, Thriller was the the be-all, end-all of music videos. And, and Michael Jackson at the time could do no wrong. And then he came out with this video that absolutely blew me away and scared me to death. 
and I became obsessed with it. And at some point walking through a video store, saw on the, on the, on the shelf, a box art of Michael Jackson's thriller. And it was the whole behind the scenes, all the makeup they did, the dancing choreography, the sets, all of that stuff. And it engulfed me. Like it's the first instance where I got so into the behind the scenes of something. So and a part of me wants it to be updated. And so that way I can have it on a Blu-ray or some kind of a hard copy other than VHS. But I love the nostalgia of going back and having, like I have to watch it on VHS. There's no other way for me to watch it. You could watch it on YouTube. Yeah, but it's not the same. So how's your, thrill, how's your thriller dance, by the way? Is it? Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask that. Dude, it's a, it's a, something my co-host Jason brings up all the time because as a kid, I, I want, I, I like that. I, it blew me away so much and I loved it so much that I sat there and learned how to do the dances and everything. I couldn't do it to this day, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I like, I was obsessed with this and especially with something like it really scared me to death when I first saw it. And, and my, my father scared the bejesus out of me after I watched it. Cause he like jumped out from behind a door or something and scared me. And for the longest time I wouldn't watch thriller because watching it that night and him scaring me just completely turned me off. But as soon as I it got back to where I was watching it again and going through and watching that VHS, Oh my gosh, dude, like I was obsessed with it. I do um, remember like it was yesterday when that was airing on MTV. I mean, it was a huge event. Mm-hmm. So I I do remember seeing that video because I think there's a lot of John Landis um, behind the scenes too. Yes. And he was directing that as well. So before the uh, the murder fiasco. That's that's John Landis directed that, correct? Yep. Yes. Not, okay. Okay. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a cool exchange with John Landis and, and Michael Jackson in that because Michael Jackson wanted someone who could direct horror and he saw American Werewolf in London, and that's what convinced him to go to John Landis. But when they met and they talked about what John Landis had done in the past, Michael Jackson had never seen any of his other movies. Oh, really? <laughs> he was, I saw American Werewolf in London, and I wanted I wanted you to direct my video. It was it really is very cool. it is very American Werewolf in London if you kind of know that going into it. Oh, yeah. some of this, some of the sound effects and like the wolf transformation stuff yeah. is is completely taken from American Werewolf in London. Well, I, hey, if you're going to pick a John Landis film to kind of say, hey, replicate, I, I mean, American Werewolf in London can't go wrong. Yeah. Right. My my pick is kind of along the same lines as Brad. And it's funny because this week I tried to to introduce my son to a film he hadn't seen before. So he's seen a lot of John Carpenter films, but there was a, a blind spot and it was Escape from New York. And mm-hmm. so I brought out the Shop, Shop Factory Blu-ray, sat down put it in. He didn't make it past the menu screen. So apparently I picked a night that he was super tired, but you know what? I was going to watch it anyways. And I got to admit that is my pick for film that I had it on VHS. I remember renting it all the time. And when I had a chance to get it, I absolutely loved it. And when I watched the Blu-ray again this week, I remember why I loved it so much. I think it goes a little bit to what you're talking about, Brad, the scenery, especially of New York, well, East St. Louis, <laughs> a.k.a. New York. New York and yeah. if you've ever been around East St. Louis, it, that's pretty scary in and of itself um, in some parts of the neighborhood. But the, the city looks so much better with all that grain and distortion. And the I, I would say the screen work that's happening behind the scenes of New York. So especially the sequences where you have a guard walking on the wall itself and helicopters are coming through and they're supposed to be going to New York or you see the model work, the, the screen work, just the, the glaring fact that it's a screen shows up on Blu-ray 
Whereas I remember on VHS thinking, man, that looked so realistic. I actually yeah. believe that was a rundown version of New York. But the more definition you add to some of those, you know, really special effects sequences, they just don't look as good. And I think they lose some of its value and charm like, compared oh, to the VHS. That's a matte, that's a matte painting. That's not, yeah. that's not, a, that's a matte it's not even a matte painting. It looked yeah. kind of like a, there's some sequences that look like a bed sheet and they were just projecting yeah. New York on top yeah. of it. You'll see a lot of that in old um, James Cameron movies. Uh, Terminator and uh, Aliens per se, like Aliens, I just watched recently, and you can they they haven't done a 4K of Aliens yet. I, I'm waiting for that, but even the Blu-ray is it looks so good. And if you watch it on a 4K or a UHD TV, you can tell that there's matte paintings in the background and that there's rear projection going on when the ship crashes and they're running from it. That you can absolutely it takes you out of it now. It's so clear, but yeah, like that's. Even something like Beetlejuice, which we reviewed and we talked about seeing the strings as he flies yes, up out of the grave. Right. Like, and you know, when they made these movies, they were never expecting to have all of this magnification and ways that they could improve on the picture. So they were able to hide the strings quite, quite literally with, with the way, you know, the only way they could do video back then. So yes. it, it, it kind of hurts it nowadays when you get these 4Ks. And it, it's so funny because. Newer movies are shot digitally, so they already look pretty much the best they can. It's the 4K transfers and the and the upgrades and stuff they do from old film footage that ends up looking the best. But unfortunately, that's where you have kind of a contrast is how well can we make this look when we like, can we make it look good without making it look fake? You know, that's true. I'll say this about 4K, especially when it comes down to good stunt work when you see how things are going and what's going on within um, a scene and you know, it's not digital, things are really blowing up. People are mm -hmm. trying to get out of the way of the explosion or they're taking a fall or getting hit in the face and it's done really well. I'll say the 4k adds more drama to the scene because you understand it's a practical effect, mm -hmm. the special effects and, and et cetera, don't necessarily hold up. So I'll always have a, you know, I would say VHS and especially Laserdisc because I, I still have a pretty significant good Laserdisc collection. I, I still like going back and looking at those. And, you, and there are some movies I, I don't mind watching on full frame either because I think it takes me back to those VHS days of, you know, going to the store, getting something, putting it on those, you know, your big tube TV and watching it on glorious like 17 inch screen thinking that there are a couple of movies that I distinctly have memories of because they were pan and scans, <laughs> like uh, the multiplicity with, with Michael Keaton. Oh yeah. Like that one is so bad. Like if you watch that now, like they shot it in pan and like in full frame. So, or, or I'm getting confused here. They shot it and they, they had to do pan and scans because of the way it had to be released. But I remember seeing that like on cable and the pan and scan was very noticeable in it. Well, you, you talked about James Cameron. I just found uh, my copy of The Abyss, and I think he sort of prefers the full screen just because of the depth of the underwater scenes versus uh, the widescreen version he shot it in. But th that's another one between The Abyss and True Lies. I'm still waiting for the new Blu-ray special edition. I mean, you're the only, the only one waiting for The Abyss, dude. You're the only one. I, I love actually, I would, I would love to have The Abyss on, on a release. Um, it's funny you bring up the abyss because the last time I watched it was actually on VHS. Uh, whenever I was setting up our, our podcast room here and getting things decorated for it, um, I just had the TV on and I would put a movie on while I was 
doing stuff. And the abyss was one of the movies that I had a VHS. I popped it in and it was playing while I was doing all of this stuff. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it, and it looks, it looks great when you're watching it on VHS, you don't see, oh, yeah. you don't see the seams and, and all the special effects on that for sure there. But I don't know. I I'm afraid that would be one of the ones where 4k might hurt the overall feel of that movie, but we'll see. I mean, yeah, he's, he's got to get done with his, what, two, three, four sequels he's doing on the space cat people. I don't think before. they're ever coming. I, I really don't. Like, <laughs> Well, hey, he has, remember Sam Worthington? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> I kind of do. Yeah. That poor guy tried to have a career. He was yeah. in some of the biggest movies of the time. And now where is he? Yeah. So, Josh, you were doing the thing this month on your show. And we got to talking to you about John Carpenter in general. And you picked Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Was there a particular reason why you went with this one? And that's my first question. And the second thing is, I have to assume John Carpenter is one of your favorite directors. Is that an accurate statement? Because based on your your dialogue on the thing, I mean, you guys were, were just shooting a ton and, of love And your attire. Way. Yeah, and your yeah. whole attire. So uh, No, no, I hate the guy, actually. No. Um, <laughs> oh, and happy birthday, John Carpenter, by the way. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Happy yeah. birthday, John Carpenter. I, I celebrated by watching The Fog last night. So, yeah, I guess you could say I'm a fan. Uh, he, John Carpenter is the, he's the director that I grew up watching and never knowing he was the director I was watching. Um, there are so many movies as I got more into film and watching movies and being a fan of directors that I started watching these movies and going, Christine, John Carpenter directed Christine? And then, like, like Memoirs of an Invisible Man. John Carpenter directed that. Like I started realizing all of this and, uh, and it's, it's kind of the same thing with the thing I, for, for the longest time, I could have never told you it was a John Carpenter movie, even though it says John Carpenter is the thing. But um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the, he's one of the first directors that I can recall. Once I found out who he was in the movies he directed, it all made sense because they all look similar. They all feel the same. They all kind of have the same um, DNA throughout them whether it's the score or the, the cinematography, the actors, like he has a group of people that have been so synonymous with working with him that it's hard to not see it once you know. And uh, he's made some of the best movies that's that have come out of Hollywood and, and independent and all of that. I mean, he's just a, a phenomenal filmmaker that I think is quite underrated. I mean, it, it, there are some that are probably more underrated than he is, but I don't think he gets enough credit for the stuff he's contributed to, to film at all. I, I agree. Absolutely. I, I can't think of another director for me in my, in my movie watching taste that was more influential in the eighties than John Carpenter growing up, because it, it felt like there was a string of movies and we'll get to that in a minute when we sort of talk about his filmography a little bit. There were a string of movies that were always on repeat for me and to your point josh i didn't really know they were john carpenter films until later mm -hmm. when you start recognizing oh the guy's name above the title he's doing all these other films that i happen to like a lot and oh why am i not paying attention to it, it always yeah. starts with john carpenter's yep. whatever right well the so, biggest offender for me was big trouble in little china Holy I mean, cow. Uh -oh. never never knew <laughs> never knew until i became a, an older film fan and I was like, holy shit. Yeah, this is a John Carpenter movie. <laughs> but when I was a kid, you would have never convinced me that he was the same. The same guy who did Halloween made this movie. I would have been like, you're out of your mind. Now, I, I don't I know he was born 
in New York, Troy. But I, I think when he moved to Kentucky, I think that's when he became a much better person. So I'm not <laughs> oh going to say Kentucky goodness. like made him better, but he probably did. I mean, I'm sure it the did. Bluegrass State has its, you know, it's when you get in within carpet. that radius of the <laughs> Bluegrass State. Apparently, you you get your cool points, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Well, Josh, you picked tonight's movie, which is 1992's Memoirs of an Invisible Man. We have a lot of stuff to talk about even before we get to our thoughts on the film. This one has a very interesting background. But Brad, you're our numbers guy. This thing came out in 92. I'm curious. It's it's obviously on a podcast called Not a Bomb. So therefore, it bombed. Yes. But how did this sucker do when it came out in the theater? And what was it up against? Okay, so budget for this film is $40 million, which when you see the effects and everything into this movie, I think that is pretty apparent that they spent a lot of money on this movie. 1992 Chevy Chase probably wasn't cheap either. And um, so unfortunately it only makes $14.3 million um, during its theatrical run. That's all domestic, not released um, internationally Um, comes out February 28th of 1992. Check out these films because one of these is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's not the first one. Coming out in February of 1992, we have The Medicine Man, which is Sean, Sean Connery. Connery. Directed by John McTiernan. By John McTiernan. Is that the one where they're trying to find like the cure for cancer or something like that? In, like, in the, the jungles, yes. In the jungle, okay. Correct. Um, here it is. On Valentine's Day in 1992, you could have taken your sweetheart to see Wayne and Garth in Wayne's World, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. A so. huge huge hit that thing stayed at the top of the box office for a few weeks we'll get there we will get there hold that thought um also you can see chaplin that robert downey jr yeah which if you would have gone to my head if you would have told me did did robert downey jr play charlie chaplin i would have said no but i would have been incorrect troy i'm sure you're going to defend this movie so i'm just going to say it stop or my mom will shoot i'm sure you (laughs) love that movie it's getting a blu-ray release in march I was just about to say that. (laughs) (laughs) And guess who pre-ordered it? This guy. (laughs) And then I believe Elijah Wood is in this movie. It's Radio Flyer. Okay. I think you're right. Didn't he turn his wagon into like a flying machine or something? I don't. I know of it. I haven't seen it. And those are your. Saw it once when I was a kid. I distinctly remember seeing it, but I could not tell you anything about it. Not even who was in it. Those are your uh, bangers for that month. So, Troy, you brought it up. The top grossing films of 1992. Do you have any idea what the number one film would be? Just I, think Walt Disney. My goodness. <laughs> I You ask me this question all the You're time. So I always get it, it wrong. I, I could say, like, Wayne's World was probably in okay. the top five or ten. No, it was know. ten. Wayne's World ten. grossed $183 million. That's crazy. That's why you got a second one, like, nine months later. That's crazy for February, because January and February are usually just dumping ground for a studio. Yeah. So, Yeah, it's it's funny, because you have Aladdin, The Bodyguard. Remember, The Bodyguard <laughs> grossed $411 million. That. Half almost half fair. a billion that's, dollars. That is not that's that's why we have transformer movies, okay, that make a billion dollars. So <laughs> and this one, which Donald Trump was going to be digitally removed from home on um, two, home on two at uh, number three, basic instinct. Oh 352 million dollars. I think at Spicy. one point in time, yeah, it was the highest grossing R-rated film. Um <laughs> wow. 
Lethal that Weapon. Is, that is that is a movie I have a story of, of being a kid and like trying to watch that movie. <laughs> yeah, Josh, we all had that story. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say everybody, everybody uh, tried to watch that one. Yeah, and then rounding out uh, top five is Lethal Weapon Numero Three with so, uh, the introduction of Rene Russo. Yep. Oh yeah, that's right. Yep. Is a uh, is Pesci introduced in that one too, or is no, that Pesci was in part two? Yeah. Two. Okay. He comes yeah, yeah. back in three. Yep. Okay. 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 Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Sorry. Um, so yeah, that's your top five for uh, 1992. Also that year, the University of Kentucky lost to Duke in one of the most um, famous basketball games of all time, sadly. Um, so there. Oh, okay. Oh, but, go ahead. Rotten Tomatoes. Well, hold on. Mm. Okay. So when, when memoirs came out though, it, it didn't debut at number one, right? It was no, but Wayne's um, World was still playing strong at that point. Yes, it, it actually grossed $4.6 million its first weekend, but everything after that was like, now, son. Nothing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it debuted at number two. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty good. So how did the critics respond to memoirs? Not kind. Um, 24% on Rotten Tomatoes with 33 uh, reviews. Audience, not much better uh, at 32%. Almost over 19,000 reviews on this movie on Rotten Tomatoes on the user side, uh, 32%. So, uh, Oh, I think Ebert ripped it too. Like, I think he had nothing but bad stuff to say about it. Wow. Yes. He, yes. Ebert was not a fan. Yes. I, be- I believe he said it was lazy and conventional. The, the reviews though, do, if you go back and read them, I think everybody, they all hate the script. They will all the say this. Yes. Mm-hmm. They will, they will chastise, the actors yep they will they all say, love the effects oh my gosh everybody raves about the effects so no matter what review is trashing the film everybody comes back to the effects that's pretty much what the reviews were saying right yeah yep i mean and that's carpenter's mo right um the thing is dude the thing is like one of the most has the best practical effects of almost probably any movie ever it is. I, I don't know if that's so part. It was Carpenter's, very, po- very poorly received. Yes. Again, very poorly received. Yeah. That's kind of, isn't that Carpenter's like motif a little bit that we all kind of have to go back and be like, Oh wait, that was actually kind of genius. Not, not just, necessarily. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that. So that's yeah. a good, that's a good transition. Okay. If we talk about the, the crew and the cast and we'll start with John Carpenter. So we won't focus a ton on Carpenter because we, will talk about a lot of carpenter bombs he has a history of it so josh you guys talked about the thing mm-hmm. and i can't urge people enough to go back and and just listen to the vhs files podcast it's only about a week old it's a fantastic conversation on the thing we will tackle it someday but i got to be honest with you josh even after listening to your podcast it may be a year or two <laughs> if, if we're still doing this because you guys did such a fantastic job, I'm gun shy of it now. What, what else can we say that you guys, uh, we just, I just don't feel we could add to the conversation. You guys did such a brilliant job on it. You'd be surprised that that movie is one that can take so many different directions. Like I said, you could talk about it in so many different ways and it's just one of those movies, man. Definitely don't sway away from it just because, just because of ours. I, I, if you guys want to talk about that movie, there's plenty to be said. That's absolutely a, not a problem. <laughs> Absolutely. And and here's where I have a little bit of maybe a disagreement with you, Brad. It seems if you give Carpenter the right budget, he ends up turning a pretty sweet little profit of a film. 
However, he seems to struggle with larger budgets that a studio is involved in. So we'll talk about it that in detail and use memoirs of an invisible man as an example. But you guys talk about the thing, the thing had a, not a huge budget, uh, budget, but it was a substantial budget for the practical effects, et cetera. And again, it was a bomb, right? Big right. trouble in little China is another example that it was universal or excuse me, 20th century Fox. Mm -hmm. And it had a pretty sizable budget, but it couldn't recoup that. But there are two films that I would point to and they lead up to the movie we're talking about tonight. So in 87, he did Prince of Darkness. And in 98, he did They Live. Both of those had about a three or 98. They Live is 98. Prince of Darkness is. No, They Live is 88. Oh, they you're live. right. 80. I don't, I, you're right. Yes. Typo. Excuse me. <laughs> yes. My notes. Okay. So yeah, Prince of Darkness is 1987. They Live is 1988. Both those have about a three or four million dollar budget, but you know they they clock in at four or five times that budget when all is said and done, and they live and and even if you read interviews with John Carpenter, he is shocked that they live debuted at number one when it came out. So it it has a not a great critical review history. However, people look at it now and say, oh, there, there's a lot going on in that film. We could talk all night about John Carpenter, but the question I have for you guys, because he has a fantastic filmography going from Dark Star in 1974, even all the way up to, if we're, if we're just talking about his films, 2010's The Ward. But I got to ask, what, what are your top five John Carpenter films? Do you, do you know off the top of your head? Yes, I do. Okay. What are they, Brad? It goes... And, and do, you have a, do you have them in order? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... I am a the thing, and then I go big trouble, and then I go uh, Halloween, and then I go, I think they live, and then assault on precinct thirteen. I think that's my my list. Okay, in that order, right? So yes, your number one is the thing. Yes. Okay. How about you, Josh? I am a little away from that. I would say Halloween is my number one. Okay. Just just from uh, being a big horror fan and and the perspective of watching that movie as much as I did, uh, like I said, the thing is my number two for sure, and that's partially because it was an, a movie that got to me later in life. Uh, after that, I would say Big Trouble in Little China, uh, Christine, and I'm throwing in in the mouth of madness. I think that one is highly underrated. That is a it, it is movie. a very it is a very dense movie, and I love. I love that movie. I find something new in it every time I watch it. I think this is funny that the three of us are top three of John Carpenter's the same, but different order. For me, it's Big Trouble in Little China. That is hands down one of the greatest movies ever committed to film, ever. And if you haven't seen Big Trouble in Little China, you're just not living a complete life in my opinion. I think it's one of the funnest movies you can watch. Like I It is so rewatchable. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. And look, if you're looking for something to dip your toes into uh, just Asian cinema in general, that will give you a taste of what's out there, especially from the 70s and 80s. But Good Trouble in Little China, in my opinion, is Kurt Russell's greatest film he's ever done, ever, hands down. Kurt Russell will never do a better film than Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> and if you want to see where Ed Boon and John Tobias got Raiden for Mortal Kombat, uh, see Big Trouble in Little China because they straight up yeah. stole it. Yep. Yeah, there, it, there, are th there are three Raidens in that movie. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And number two would be The Thing. Number three is Halloween for me. So those top three, we're, we all share just different order. Number four for me is Assault on Precinct 13. It is an urban Western. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And so John Carpenter is a big fan of Westerns. He, he really takes that genre and brings it up to a modern setting. I think it's fantastic. It's tense. It's very rewatchable. And number five for me is Escape from New York. So I, I still have a couple of problems with Escape from New York just because of the time it's made. But again, it, it would be probably my favorite movie to go back and watch on VHS. And I think the character of Snake Plissken, again, Kurt Russell owns that role. It has a fantastic third act. It's just one big chase sequence. And I think he pulls it off fantastic on such a just a limited budget. And it spawned all these apocalyptic Italian ripoffs for that time period, which are, are kind of fun to go back and watch. It's Does fun to go back and... A... I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Brad. Uh, it's just, I was just going to say, it's fun to watch a pre, uh, Assault on Precinct 13 now, and you see a lot of the, the genesis of Halloween in that movie uh, with, the, with the cinematography, the way, the way a lot of it is shot and the, the tone that he's going for in that movie. If you watch that and then watch Halloween back to back, you will see so much of the same stuff in that. It's it's, but I I love it for that reason. I love seeing John Carpenter kind of coming into his own in those movies. Absolutely. No, I was going to ask that ten year run from like seventy eight to eighty eight. Is that almost? I mean, has anyone had a better ten year run than that? Spielberg, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess Spielberg. And, There's and a huge caliber of directors that would fit in between those two directors too, so you got to consider that. Yeah, but I mean, he's putting out almost a movie a year during that time frame too. It's not like he's taking much time cheaply off. too. Like, like, yeah, he was the guy you went to with a small budget and bringing in a good box office. Well, and even his TV films for someone's watching over me and Elvis are, are fantastic. John Carpenter is one of the few directors, I think, you know, Spielberg's another one, I guess, but there aren't a whole lot of directors that I can go back and say, yeah, I've seen everything they've done from TV to film, et cetera. Obviously I'm still working through Werner Herzog, that box set, but um, I heard I, you guys I, talking about him. <laughs> that, that dude is a character. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you I think about Troy's impression? Did you, did you think, it was spot on or what? <laughs> What's funny is I messaged I messaged you guys whenever I was listening to that episode. I was like, "Well, that was great." And and uh, Troy came back and he said, "I don't I don't think Brad was expecting that." <laughs> I just wish everybody could have seen Brad's expression while I'm doing that. It was just he was lost. But yeah, John Carpenter. I have you met him before in person? Yes. What, what did you think of John Carpenter in person? I mean, you were there, weren't you? I was there with you. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I thought he was super nice. I mean, to me, he was, I don't know. If I ever meet John Carpenter, there's one question I'm going to ask him. What's that? And that is, did you ever expect that you would become uh, Lopan in real life? <laughs> because oh gosh, yeah. because yeah. if you look at old man Lopan in, in Big Trouble in Little China, like, I'm sorry, John, you're kind of resembling your character a little bit nowadays. <laughs> it's a very, very terrible thing to say, but that's unfortunately all I can think of when I watch Big Trouble in Little China. And I'm like, oh God, this did not this did not work out too well for John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a nice guy. I will say he he comes off a little cold, maybe reserved. He of all the celebrities I've met, he hasn't been the most outgoing. But again, you have you have a bunch of film nerds going up to him asking probably the same question over and over again. And hey, I'm sure the time you did the thing. Yeah, wow. That hey, was I mean, hey, all of us are Chris Farley, Chris when Farley we're yes. talking to John Carpenter. So I'm sure he gets tired of it. But if you bring up video games and 
uh, I don't know, basketball or something of that nature, he'll, he'll light up, but he, he was a nice guy. He just looked, I, I don't know, a little bit tired and maybe talking about the same films over and over again, which, which I totally understand that, but he, he was nice. He, he just felt a little detached, but man, I, I would be that, too. If you're, if you're dealing with all these people who are asking the same thing over yeah. and over again, that's what I get out of almost any interview I watch with him is it just seems like he would rather be anywhere, but talking about whatever he's talking about. And, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the other side of John Carpenter, which is musically, he is also amazing too. So it's like, mm-hmm. he's a fantastic director and musically he's better than I mean scoring. I, I mean, he's made some of the most iconic scores in, in cinema history. Well, if he's someone came up, I mean, that's the thing. If someone came to you, if uh, somebody off the street was like, what's so good about this John Carpenter guy? Like you have to go into every aspect of what this guy's done as a filmmaker, like Spielberg, even though he's got some of the biggest movies, my favorite movie of all time um, was not doing, he had a team helping him do the things that he, that he accomplished. John Carpenter was doing it pretty much on his own at the beginning. It was him and Deborah Hill. And then he moved on to doing his own thing, but like he was making, you know, he was the guy, he was the mouse in the cream churning it into butter. Like, he was doing everything he could on the cheap and making really damn good movies for, for very little money. Yeah. And I like the fact that his scores, I, I love the, I love that he's sort of having a second life as a composer because he's releasing these John Carpenter lost themes. I think he has three albums of those out now. I love those. Love yeah. They're, they're fantastic. He's a great composer, but I, I think I like the fact too, and we'll talk about this film. He also knows when to st- stand back and say, I'm, I'm not going to do the music for a film. So if you watch Escape from New York, if you watch Halloween, if you watch Big Trouble in Little China, his music fits those films perfectly. But he also knows when to bring in somebody like uh, Shirley, Shirley Walker, who did this film. She also did Escape from LA for him as well. So Memoirs of an Invisible Man is a studio film, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes in terms of detail. It's not a a screenplay written by John Carpenter, but it's John Carpenter directing. He's brought on from the studio to direct. And when we talk about the screenplay, this is where it gets really interesting. So you have Robert Collector and Dana Olson. There are three screenwriters attributed to this, but the first two, Robert Collector, he did Jungle Warriors in 1984. It's basically just this low budget film where models are fighting a drug cartel in South America. The other movie that Robert Collector did was Red Heat and it's a German prison movie with Linda Blair. So just nothing anybody has ever seen probably in 84 and 85 either, just throwaway stuff, right? Dana Olson ends up doing the screenplay for The Burbs in 1989, George of the Jungle in 97 and Inspector Gadget in 99. So those are the two that are doing the rewrites to the screenplay. They didn't do the original draft. The person who had done the original draft and is listed as a screenwriter is William Goldman. Now, can you name any movies that William Goldman has done? Uh, All the President's Men. All the President's Men, Academy Award for that, right? Yeah. Here's a screenwriter who did Butch Cassidy and the Sundance, Sundance Kid in 1969. Is he, I'm gonna say this out loud and if I get it wrong, I think is he Princess Bride? He did do The Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. He's done The Stepford Wives in 75, Marathon Man in 76. We talked about All the President's Men in 76. Heat, now not the De Niro Pacino yeah. one, but the Burt Reynolds film from 1986, which I happen to love. 
The Princess Bride in 87. He did Misery in 1990. So the Stephen King adaptation. He's done a couple of Stephen King adaptations. He did Dreamcatcher in 2003. You'll love this, Brad. I, I wrote this down. He was uncredited for doing some rewrites on 1993's Last Action Hero. So he was involved in dabbling in that one. And then he kind of redid his screenplay for Heat in 87 for Burt Reynolds, turned around and redid it for Jason Statham, and it was called Wild Card in 2015. Now, William Goldman, from a, from a screenwriting perspective, has a lot of pedigree. He's an he, Academy Award winner. He's Academy Award winner that, you know, he writes the first draft of this. And then they bring in Robert Collector and Dana Olson to kind of punch it up or do a bunch of rewrites. But a lot of what William Goldman has within the screenplay is still there. We talked about the music done by Shirley Walker, the cast. So this is a Chevy Chase vehicle. What are you guys' thoughts on Chevy Chase in terms of a comedic actor, performer, his movies, anything? I Besides Fletch in probably Christmas Vacation, I'm not really the biggest Chevy Chase fan. Even his really? SNL stuff. I don't know. I find him to be, I don't like his stick, like his smartest guy in the room sort of stick. I don't like it. I, it just, it's a big turnoff to me. So I've never been a big Chevy Chase guy. Oh, goodness. Until, what about you, Josh? Until I learned about how Chevy Chase is in real life, I didn't really have too much of an issue with him. I mean, he could suffer from exactly what John Carpenter is. is I mean, he's tired of everybody asking him the same old questions about the same stuff he's done for years. Uh, but I'm kind of in the same boat as Brad. Like, I love Christmas Vacation. I love his performance in that. And Three Amigos was always, like, top-notch Chevy Chase for me. Um, but, I mean, he's got two other people sharing the screen with him and that that's making that movie. So I had never seen Fletch until literally months ago. Really? Oh, wow. Months yeah. ago? Okay. Mm -hmm. What'd you think and, of it? And I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, it kind of get. I, I was a Beverly Hills cop guy. That was what was always on in my house. Okay. So it, it you that chose, was, you chose the better film. <laughs> I mean, I, I, okay. That could be a debate. I, I love them both, but better. Ooh. Mm. I like Fletch and, and Beverly Hills cop is good. I actually like the sequel to Beverly Hills cop more, but that's a whole different discussion. I'm with you on that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Chevy Chase has never been like a staple for me. He just happens to be in a few movies that I really enjoy. See, I, I, I really like Chevy Chase. Now he's got some personal problems and maybe some things that he has done off camera that has gotten him into trouble. Hey, look, the internet, you can go down a rabbit hole and, you know, see all those things, read all those things. And maybe he's just missed the mark on, you know, being, politically correct on several occasions. I, I think that's probably a safe way to say it. Right. Right. But go back and the mark up being a good person. Okay. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know, man. I don't know what goes on, you know, maybe money, fame, all that other stuff. It, it's harder to handle than what I think it is and constantly paparazzi, all that other stuff. So I, I get it. I, I mean, and I believe in the seventies, wasn't he always coked out of his mind for SNL? I mean, it wasn't that kind of the thing they were doing was, well, he, he has an rails interesting and, and rails and then writing skits. Well, he had, he had an interesting background in terms of drug addiction. And the reason why he went to the Betty Ford clinic was actually over painkillers yeah. because he did so much physical comedy that the thing that really sent him over the edge were the prescription drugs. So I got to say this, anything that you say of Chevy Chase, maybe going into the nineties, et cetera, I would say that guy was dealing with a lot of personal stuff. 
And that type of physical comedy that he was doing from the 70s and 80s and maybe the early 90s, I mean, that takes a toll on you, right? And here's a guy that if you think about it, in the 80s, he was one of America's biggest box office draws. If you if you look at his filmography in the 80s, you can't underestimate things like National Lampoon's Vacation, Fletch, even Spies Like Us, which is a John Landis film directed in 85, was a Okay, huge I do hit. love that. I do love that movie too. Spies I Like Us is that. a fantastic yes. film. But I, I remember in 78, Foul Play with Goldie Hawn. He did a couple of films with Goldie Hawn, 1978's Foul Play and Seems Like Old Time in 1980. And, and they're pretty good films. Caddyshack in 1980 is a classic. It's a comedy classic. It's so good. Under the Rainbow, 1981, which seemed like an HBO film that I watched over and over again growing up, which was sort of behind the scenes of The Wizard of Oz and Modern Problems in 81. But in 83, National Lampoon's Vacation, big hit. He does Deal of the Century. That's okay. Fletch is a fantastic film. It's a great thriller. It is very funny. You get Chevy Chase, I think, at his peak in terms of that dry wit and humor and those comebacks. It's, it's so rewatchable. I love that film. European Vacation, not as good as the first, but it still has a lot of funny moments to it. You get Spies Like Us in the same year in 85, Three Amigos in 1986, which is a classic. It, it's so good. And those three play off each other so well. Now, I think the story goes is, again, Landis left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor of the comedy bits. But even what shows up on the screen is really good. Funny Farm in 1998. Have you, have you guys seen that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would probably be the other Chevy Chase movie that is like near and dear to my heart. That's one that was on cable all the time and was always on our TV. Yeah, and, and it's really good. Now, the interesting thing about Funny Farm in 1988, that was produced by Cornelius Productions. So Cornelius is Chevy Chase's real name, his first name. Mm-hmm. So Cornelius Productions actually made two movies. It did Funny Farm in the movie we're talking about in 1992, which is Memoirs of an Invisible Man. After Funny Farm, he does a stint with Caddyshack 2 in 88, does Fletch Lives in 89, not as strong as Fletch. No. <laughs> when we're getting into the 90s, I think this is where Chevy is having some problems. Did you just skip the best movie? The best movie? Oh, well, yeah. that's what I'm saying. You got, okay. you got, he leaves the 80s with one of probably the most iconic Christmas films that I think everybody of our age group watches from now on, which is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, right? And I, I guarantee all the money that he has right now is probably just off of that yearly viewing. That royalty check when it comes in every January <laughs> yeah. after December. Yep. yep. He just, yep. And, it it, is, and it's good. It's so rewatchable. It is my favorite Christmas movie. No bars about it. Oh, it's not even close. Yeah. So you get, you get 1989 and we get into the nineties and the first film out of the nineties is nothing but trouble, which he did as a favor <laughs> to Dan Aykroyd. I'm going to tell you right now that that one's going to be on the show at some point. It is a, to me, a fascinating film behind the scenes, and I would love man, to have Dan a dis- man. Yeah, I would love to have a discussion on that one as a bomb. I would it, love to talk about that movie as well because yeah. maybe I've you got- can, maybe I can you can sub in for me, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> That, it's been yeah. it's been a little while since I have seen it, but uh, when I was a when I was a young person, I had opinions about that movie. I'm starting to regret this idea already. <laughs> this podcast, but it, but it's interesting. He gets into the '90s. He he does nothing but trouble '91, memoirs in '92. So those are two box office bombs, and that was the last movie that Cornelius Productions ended up doing. 
Funny Farm was actually, uh, I believe, I don't think it was a bomb, but I think it did okay. The 94, he does Cops and Robertson's, Man at House in 95, Vegas Vacation in 97, Snow Day in 2000. He kind of has a comeback on television with Community, but then all of a sudden his, his personal comments and everything behind the scenes tarnish that performance. But you can't deny in the 80s, going into the 90s, Chevy Chase was a bona fide Hollywood star. He had clout. Also in the film, Daryl Hannah, which I think is another big 80s name as Alice Monroe in the film. She was in The Fury, which I don't know if you guys have seen that one. Oh, that's Brian De Palma, right? Yeah, 1978. That's one of the De Palma movies I haven't seen. I'd love to watch that one. Yeah, and and of course, uh, Pris in Blade Runner 1982. So one of your favorites, right, Brad? Yes. And here's where, so you can go through her entire filmography. There's a lot of stuff she did. I, I think she really hit it big with 1984's Splash with Tom Hanks. But I think she had a, another comeback. She has steady work. If you go look at her filmography, she's always working. But come on, Brad, what what film do we associate Daryl Hannah with? Kill Bill. Yeah, one and two. Mm-hmm. You also get Sam Neill's David Jenkins. So he did, uh, you know, a lot of minor films, TV. The the movies I remember Sam Neill in before Jurassic Park, because that came the year after this one in 1993. But I don't know if you guys ever saw Dead Calm with Nicole Kidman, Sam Neill. 1989 fantastic if you you put if you put sam neill in front of me before jurassic park dead calm would have been the movie i would have told you yeah that one in hunt for red october in 1990 so he was in that as well memoirs in 92 hits it big with jurassic park him and carpenter have a fantastic working relationship off memoirs so sam neill comes back for in the mouth of madness in 1995 which i agree with you josh is is super underrated. It's a fantastic yeah. movie. And I think you all talked about this, Josh, but Carpenter is one of those guys who once he finds that he can work with you and you do a good job and you listen to him, he's going to mm-hmm. keep bringing you back. And he was kind of one of the first directors to start having like a crew that of, of, of characters that just keep kind of coming back and coming back. So well, we were talking about Kurt Russell in the thing episode. Yeah. And um, I mean, really like John Carpenter is probably the reason Kurt Russell is a star. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, there's, I mean, he, he did the Elvis TV movie with Carpenter and then was able to move on from that to uh, escape from New York and then into big trouble. And, Cause he was and, a and Disney thing and, a Disney kid before yeah, that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. yep. Well, and we talked about flash Gordon. So that was the last uh, episode that you came on for Josh mm-hmm. and Kurt yep. Russell was up for flash Gordon, but he chose escape from New York instead of flash Gordon. He took so. the better route. <laughs> he well. should he should give all of his money to his agent at the time and just say thank you very much for helping me make the right decision so a couple of other people i just want to mention in front of the camera we get michael mckeon as george talbot so he's he's a fantastic actor mostly known for his comedy spinal tap spinal tap right patricia yeah. eaton as ellen now you'll know her from everybody loves raymond but i believe mm-hmm. this is one of her first roles if not the first like film role she did and this is my favorite thing. And as soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh, my God, that's the guy from uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Nope, Eddie Lee. Oh, Eddie Lee. So okay. the cab driver, Donald Lee, is is Eddie Lee from Big Trouble in Little China. I don't know if you guys yep. recommend is that. So that's everything in front of the camera. Now, before we get into thoughts in the film, I want to talk about what was going on when they were making this sucker. This, this one is so fascinating. So a l- little bit of history. Memoirs of an Invisible Man is based on a book. Okay. And it was a very successful book. But even before the book was finished, 
there was a little bit of a bidding war going on. And it took about six years to get the movie made from the time that the book was written. And Warner Brothers won the bidding war for the film rights, paying about $1.25 million in 1986. Okay? So they get the film rights. They look at this thing and they go, hey, this would make a really good film for Chevy Chase in the lead role as failed businessman Nick Holloway, our, our invisible man, the anti-hero. And they go ahead and grab Ivan Reitman from Ghostbusters, and they have him as director. That's when they bring in William Goldman. So they got Reitman and Goldman working on this adaptation of a book. And the book is a bit more serious. So it, it deals with maybe what you might consider, hey, what are the alienating things about being invisible? So it's not necessarily a comedy. So if you were to look at the book and you were to go, hey, let's cast Chevy Chase on this. If you had only read the book, you would have went, I don't understand that because Chevy Chase is known for his 80s comedies. But what Warner Brothers wanted to do is they wanted to get Reitman, have William Goldman do the script. And they said, okay, we're going to make a fun comedy adventure film. And it's, it's going to be hilarious, right? And they even have, you know, elements of the script of, oh, if you're invisible, can you look up, you know, girl skirts, stuff like that. that those are in the opening pages of, of him being invisible, et cetera. So that, that's the type of film they're doing. I don't know if it's necessarily Caddyshack, but I'm sure you're getting sort of a Ghostbusters version of memoirs. Yeah. Chase got a hold of the book and looked at it, and he was instantly just attracted to the material. But Chevy Chase saw it as a different movie. He wanted to do something. This was, was like a passion project for him. Like he wanted to, he wanted to take this as an opportunity to not be Clark W. Griswold anymore. Yeah. And, and you're spot on Josh. So he's doing all these comedy roles in his mind. He thinks, Hey, I can show off my skills as a serious actor. And it really becomes a vanity project for Chevy chase. Mm -hmm. So instantly he's at odds with the vision that Ivan Reitman, William Goldman, and the studio has. And he gets all upset at the attempts to introduce jokes into the initial draft. Whereas Reitman looked at what William Goldman did and said, hey, this is really good. It's an adventure film. It's got a lot of comedy in it. But Chase says, I, I don't want to do this as a comedy. I want to try and stick to the source material as much as possible. And I want to show off my acting chops, right? And I... I love this. So Reitman is complaining to the studios and says, Hey, look, Chevy Chase is not on board with this. So it's you hear him. Yeah, it's me or him. What did the studio say? Sorry, Ivan, you're out the door. We're sticking with the guy who's making all these millions of dollars, right? Yeah, That's go, hurt, go, right? Go, Ghostbusters was seven years ago. You go away now. That's yes. gotta hurt, right? It's like, it's him or me. And they're like, Okay, bye. And you're bye. like, Oh, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. You called on your bluff like that. That's gotta hurt. Yeah, and this is this is my favorite part of the story leading up to it going into production is now you got William Goldman, right? So he's working with Chevy Chase. They don't have a director. And William Golden. Do you have is, the quote? I do. His, his okay. patience just gone, right? So Chase is rattling off all his gripes with the script, says, want to change this, want to change that. Goldman, who's 57 years old now, okay? He's, he's won an Academy Award. He's been in Hollywood for a long time. He just gets up, walks out of the movie and says, quote, fuck this Chevy. I'm sorry, but I'm too old and make too much money to put up with this shit. And wow. just walks out the door. <laughs> In fact, he had to sue Warner Brothers to get his paycheck for the work that he did do on the screenplay. And he is listed as one of the screenwriters, but keep in mind, they were using his initial draft. So everything that he had, there are elements of it still there, 
but you have mm-hmm. two other screenwriters come in and punch it up and, and add the material that Chevy Chase was looking for. Is it a screenwriter or is it a story credit? Cause he's, there aren't those different. He is, but he's listed as a screenwriter. Okay. So that, that means they used, a, you Some know, of it, yes. there's, there's gotta be a quota, right. In order to get that tag in and of itself. I think it's like almost anything. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't know all the rules. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously we don't, we don't work yeah. in the industry, but he's not listed as story by he's listed as one of the three okay. screenwriters. So that's when Dana Olson, who wrote the burbs and Robert collector who did red heat. So those, you know, prison, Linda Blair prison movies, they bring them in and Chevy chase is giving the notes. And so they craft this screenplay. And again, Warner brothers is still wanting some type of Chevy chase humor. Whereas Chevy chase wants to show off his, his acting chops. Right. But now you got to find a director. So in 1990, Warner Brothers says, hey, what about this guy, John Carpenter? Now, keep in mind, John Carpenter just came off of They Live, and he's an independent filmmaker at that point. Mm -hmm. So Warner Brothers, which is a big studio, is saying, hey, John, come and and work for us, right? And Chevy Chase, big passion project, sort of an ego thing for him. He loses 20 pounds for the 84-day shoot, which is Memoirs of an Invisible Man. He does this whole regimen of running, weightlifting. I mean, he is trying to get in just peak physical condition because he knew that if he was slimmer, he could fit more comfortably into the suits, the body suits that they needed to make all the visual effects for it. And obviously within the film, you kind of get to see all of Chevy in some sequences because, mm-hmm. I mean, he's not wearing any clothes, so you got to look good for that, right? And again, Chase, Chevy Chase is looking at this and says, okay, this is a gritty parable of a man desperate to make himself whole again. That's what he's going for in terms of his performance. And he is even saying that he worked on this thing for five years. And, and just, he was deeply thinking about how to get the character right. And he's brooding on the, on the subject while he's playing jazz pieces and, and rewriting the screenplay with these two, et cetera. And finally, we get to the shooting of the movie, which didn't go so well. Him and John Carpenter get didn't get along. The studio was really in the corner of Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah. John Carpenter, not so much. He he was just trying to get through it, right? When we get to this film, we got three things going on. And I think I everybody- love though, hold on. I love I love the fact that Sam Neill and him kind of confided in each other and that's yes. kind of they became friends. Because Sam Neill seems like like the nicest guy and it was like, oh yes, of course Sam Neill would come to the rescue and be friends with John Carpenter. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. it makes total sense. And and going into the film, you've got really three things going on, right? You got a very successful comedic actor sort of in his prime that is producing. So he's producing Cornelius Project. He's producing a vanity project to, quote, break away from the Chevy Chase persona and reach for a little more dimension. That's what he's going for. You then have a cult director coming into the four-way, the foray, right? And he, he never really likes working with the studio in general. He enjoys the independent filmmaking process in and of itself. His last major film that was done by studios, that's 20th Century Fox when he did Big Trouble in Little China, bombed. And also at the time that he was going to go work on Memoirs for an Invisible Man, he's in a legal battle with the live films regarding his contract. And he had a bunch of different projects fall through. So he was not able to get the movies that he wanted to do funded and off the ground. He's in a legal battle over his contract after he finishes They Live. And then Warner Brothers comes along and says, hey, you want to do this project? Yep, no problem. And then thirdly, you've got a studio that really wanted a comedy about 
the the modern perils of being invisible. So they wanted the Ivan Reitman for him. So you've got these three things at odds during the production of Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I mean, was there anything else that you guys learned in sort of the making of the film outside of that? I was a little taken aback to find out that originally John Carpenter was attached to Exorcist 3. Yeah, wasn't that interesting? Yeah, and, and just, the, I mean, I've got a quote here from Carpenter when he talks about when he got this, uh, when he decided to take on this movie, he said, you know, when you have lots of money and lots of time, it's grueling and I enjoy being an independent and it's not possible to be one in this situation. But then I thought, why not? I hadn't done a movie in a long time. And that sounds exactly like John Carpenter. Yeah, absolutely. That um, in the oh, sorry. Oh no, go ahead. Uh, that in the uh, the effects were done by Industrial Light Magic, which is one of the best effects houses in Hollywood. Yep. Still, yeah, then yeah. and still, it and was they, premiere I, back then. Yeah, I, I thought I read like they actually had to like shoot everything twice in yes. a way to kind of do the effects and stuff. So again, why this movie cost forty million dollars is because of that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, I really, it, it really comes down to the stars in front of the camera. So Daryl Hannah, Chevy Chase, more so Chevy Chase, and all of the effects that went into this film, that's where your budget is, right? So not John Carpenter, not Sam Neill, not Michael McKeon, any of those folks. And their, this- their, their budget went to a good place in regards to the effects. I think it can be argued whether or not the budget went to the right place for other things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean... So- it, the effects are really what what you're watching this movie for at this point, in okay. my opinion. Well, let, let's get into it. So that that's all the history and memoirs and Invisible Man. So we talked about the people behind the camera, in front of the camera. Obviously, it bombed. Critics don't like it. It actually had a really good release from Shout Factory on Blu-ray recently. No audio commentary, but a lot of special features. The The DVD that they put out a few years ago actually had a lot of stuff on there. And it was ported over to the Blu-ray. And the Blu-ray looks fantastic. I don't know how you guys watched it. But I'm, I, I, I'm ready if you are, if we want to kind of get through all of the drama behind the scenes. I'm very, very curious about your guys' thoughts on this film. So, Josh, you are our guest. This was your pick. I just want your initial reactions on Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Because I know one of the reasons why you picked this also was because you hadn't seen it for so long. This was another movie that was on cable a lot in in my house. So I remember, you know, Chevy Chase being invisible and that was kind of the only real memory I had of it. And it had been, it's probably been since I was a kid that I had seen this movie. So going, going into it now was, could have almost been considered a first watch. I mean, I, I didn't know, I didn't remember a whole lot about the plot and all of that. So um, it was a good, it was a good rewatch and I, I, I enjoyed watching the movie. And we talked earlier about John Carpenter having a distinct style. Um, we're talking about this movie on a podcast called Not a Bomb because box office wise, it did bomb. Um, I think what you've, you know, you, you were talking about what you've got going on here with production wise. What you've got going on here as well is a movie that doesn't really have an identity. If you would have told me that Ivan Reitman directed this, I would have believed you. Oh, this really? does not. Okay. This does not feel like a John Carpenter movie for for a few reasons. One being, he, we talked about this earlier with him being an independent. He finds a group of people that he works with and sticks with them for a long time, and then he finds someone else. So, uh, for instance, Dean Cundey shot a lot of his early movies. Yep, that was one of the reasons you knew a John Carpenter movie is because when you go back and watch them now, the cinematography looks identical in all of them pretty much. You can see his style evolving there, but you know. Dean Cundy shooting that stuff. 
Big Trouble in Little China is the last time he works with Cundy and then moves on to a gentleman by the name of Gary Kibbe. And he shoots pretty much a lot of the things after this movie. He sh- I think he shot They Live and um, the one before They Live. I can't remember what it is. Prince of Darkness? Yeah, I think he shot Prince of Darkness and They Live. And then for this one, he's got a, a completely different cinematographer, probably because it's a studio film. Um, so he's not working with his behind the scenes crew. He's not working with a lot of the actors he's worked with before. Um, so I think that could be one reason why when you told me this is a John Carpenter movie, I went, really? Because it doesn't look like a John Carpenter movie. It doesn't feel like it. Like you don't get John Carpenter from watching this. And that's really what I took out of it this time. I can see the little things here and there that make me go, that's Carpenter, that's Carpenter, that's Carpenter. But again, like if you would have told me this was an Ivan Reitman picture, I would have had an easier time believing that because it looks, it seems more like something that, like Ghostbusters would, was than like watching They Live or Escape from New York or Escape from LA even, which comes after this. But um, that that's what I think this movie is is kind of suffering from is it's got, you've got Chevy Chase kind of driving this movie, not your director where John Carpenter is used to driving, you know? Yeah. And that I can totally get behind that as a perception of the movie and looking at it from a critical response. And trust me, every critic that was out there reviewing this thing in 92 kind of said the same thing, the shift in tone, it, you're looking for a John Carpenter film. It's not there. You're looking for a Chevy chase film. It's not there. And I think that's at odds because if you watch a lot of Chevy chase films or you watch a lot of John Carpenter films, you go in with a set level of expectations. And I don't think any of them are met within this movie whatsoever. Well, Honestly. I mean, I feel you get more of a Chevy chase movie here than a John Carpenter per se. Um, You, you really could have injected some more jokes in this and it would have been kind of a sequel to Fletch. I mean, he kind of is hitting the same tone there, if you ask me. Like, he's not as much of a cynical asshole in this, I guess. But, like, I would be more convinced that this is something more related to, like, a Fletch movie than, you know, uh, something along John Carpenter's lines. Okay. Brad, your, your initial reaction. Yeah, so my history with this movie is this was the last John Carpenter film I needed to see before I saw everything. So... You know, when we were talking about what to do, I was hoping that Josh picked this one because I'm now complete with my John Carpenter film. So you've never seen this before? Never seen it. Okay. Um, like I said, not a big Chevy Chase guy. So, you know, wasn't really going to seek it out. You know, I, I'm going to kind of echo some things that Josh said. I just feel like this movie lacks like something that makes it feel like anything. Like it just lacks ID, like some sort of, I don't know. It's It seems really shallow. And it's just hard to figure out what it is trying to be. Like, I I don't know what genre, like, obviously it's science fiction because there's some science fiction going on. But outside of that, I don't know what genre this fits into. Is it a, it's not a comedy. I don't remember laughing at all in this movie. There is some good physical comedy. I do have to say, um, when Chevy Chase is mouthing the drunk, the, the drunk guy in the, in the cab, uh, trying to get to San Francisco. A lot of that has good comedy elements that I, that I like there with, with all of that. But I agree, Brad, like there's, there's not much funny to be had here. Yeah, also. And, then, like, and like the chemistry between Daryl Hannah and, and Chevy chase is 
non-existent. Um, and I, I find Chevy Chase's character to be one of the most least likable characters I've ever seen in a movie. Like I'm supposed to feel somewhat sympathetic for this guy because, you know, he's, he's basically become invisible and he was kind of already invisible before that, but now he's really invisible, like physically. Um, I, you know, I just, I don't know. I, the good thing I can say is now I've seen all of John Carpenter's films. So <laughs> there. I am on the other side of the spectrum. Because of course one, you are. A hundred percent. But here's are. the thing. I, I read all of this stuff where people go, it doesn't have an identity. doesn't know what it wants to be. All this other stuff. I, I can see it as a Chevy Chase vanity project. I can see John Carpenter struggling with the studio behind the scenes and he gets to sprinkle little things. I mean, every John Carpenter film, not maybe every, but I would say 90% of them, he has a distrust of authority. He, he talks about that in all of his interviews. There are things like that that ring true from, from maybe the MO of John Carpenter. You find that within here. But this, there is one element where I think Chevy Chase and John Carpenter and the studios, because again, going into this, you have you really have three principal players trying to get a product out of making this film. You got the studio, you got Chevy Chase, you got John Carpenter. I think there's one element they were all on the same page about, and it was let's do something that's Hitchcock light because there are so many references to Hitchcock in this film. The fact that it takes place in San Francisco is vertigo. There's a scene with him hanging on the stairway. That's vertigo right there. But this is North by Northwest. It's a chase film. This is Hitchcock light. Now I'm not saying it is a great homage to Hitchcock. I find this to be the equivalent of junk food more so than going out for that steak dinner. And I think the studios at least got that element right. And that's what I enjoy about it. It's not quality, but I think it's still good. I laughed actually quite a bit. There are some good lines or some physical comedy that works on here. And contrary to you, Brad, the three leads, so we're talking about Chevy Chase, Sam Neill, and Daryl Hannah, and I'd probably put it in this order, Sam Neill, Chevy Chase, Daryl Hannah, in terms of performance and quality. They're believable, and I like what they bring to the table. And I do want to talk about what they bring to the table and, and maybe talk about it, but I'm totally on the other side of this thing. It is not my favorite John Carpenter film. It's one of those that I have no problem putting in and watching, and I enjoy it. And I laugh. And again, if I don't want an Alfred Hitchcock film, but I want something that's trying to get that element, maybe if, you know, again, I don't want Ruth Chris, but I'd like Taco Bell tonight. I might watch memoirs. Dude, that's game. like having a gourmet cheeseburger. Then you're like, okay, instead of this, I'm going to go have McDonald's. And the, it, there's still cheeseburgers, but it's like, no, they're completely different. They're they they the are completely class. different, but this is okay. still entertaining. It's still funny. Like I said, it's, it's not going to have um, the memorable... I would say scenic moments the way that North by Northwest has with like the airplane coming through the crop fields or something of that nature, but there's still enough stuff going on in here, especially with the visual effects that draw me into it. And while everybody raves about the visual effects to it, I really like the Hitchcockian elements that show up in this thing. And again, that's where it works for me is I think there is common ground between those three players and the things that they bring in that are Hitchcock light work for me. I'm glad you brought up Hitchcock because I didn't see that until you said it. And now I'm, I'm kind of replaying the movie in my mind and getting a lot of that. Like 
there's a lot of aspects from the, you say vertigo, like there's even the things going on uh, in the vacation home when they're there. Yes. That kind of, that kind of hint along the same lines as something like rope. Yes, um, exactly. Uh, you know, you've got all this going on and like, that's one aspect of this movie that I really do like is the predicament that Chevy Chase is in. Um, but even when he's around the people that he essentially is closest to, he's able to hear what they really think of him. I think that adds a good little twist to the to the script of the movie and and, and kind of the character development there. Uh, but I I kind of am siding with Brad a little bit here with the Daryl Hannah and Chevy Chase. Not because like Daryl Hannah is good in this. I, I absolutely think she is adorable in this movie. But I think you could take her out of this movie and it probably wouldn't lose much. Oh, like I agree. I, yeah, but they don't do enough with her at all. I was surprised this time around to actually see how little she's in the movie, to be honest with you. Dude, and seeing them kiss, like, I almost threw up in my mouth. I'm sorry. Oh I don't gosh. know what it is with them, like, kissing okay, or seeing you're Chevy Chase being kiss. drastic. No, seeing Chevy Chase kiss Daryl Hannah, like, it... Dude, no, it, no, no, hold on. I had a reaction. You mentioned the bodyguard. Seeing Kevin Costner or Whitney Houston, that's like two statues I didn't kissing. I, I'm just, Watching I, these two, they, they... It was gross. No, it wasn't. They had charming chemistry. So here's the thing... 80s 80s makeouts or 80s kisses are just terrible in general because 80s uh, uh, smooching and kissing was not kissing. It's just rubbing your faces on each other's faces. It, like it is not like no kiss I've seen in an 80s movie, I think is this passionate kiss because they're literally just pressing their lips together and rubbing their faces together. Like it, it it's something that drives me nuts about especially 80s movies how it just the kisses and stuff like that look so acted and fake back then like i think this this movie definitely has that with with chevy chase and daryl hannah thank you I, can we talk I, about the worst part of this movie no not yet mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're only talking positive no i i get what you're saying in terms of the chemistry but again i go back to north by northwest and Cary grant eva marie saint there there's a natural chemistry between those two I don't think Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah get to that level. And my problem with Daryl Hannah is it's not her acting and it's not anything that she does in the film. It's that they don't give her enough. She has natural charm. She's gorgeous. You can really tell that she gets along with Chevy Chase. And that comes through even when you read about the film, because Daryl Hannah, even after all these decades, says Chevy Chase was just amazing to work with and she loves Chevy Chase, right? So you, that really comes through on screen. So I really think they have good chemistry. The only problem is she just turns in, turns into a damsel in distress, especially within the third act. I mean, that's why she's there. Yeah, she's bait. She's bait. She becomes a plot device. Now, when you come to Chevy Chase and Sam Neill, and I want to talk about Chevy Chase for a second, I like the fact that he still retains some of his dry wit and humor throughout the film and finds moments that seem natural to interject that physical comedy. And I'll give you a good example of what made me laugh out loud was, and, and really highlights the chemistry between Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah is they meet and they're kissing, I think in the girl's restroom. And she makes that comment of let's not do anything cheap and meaningless. And he just comes back as quick as possible. Okay. What do I owe you? So he's got those elements within his banter with her that seemed natural, charismatic. It's not laugh out loud, but it gives you a nice chuckle. And I like the fact that Chevy Chase was able to interject that where it still doesn't overshadow 
his desire, his ability to try and pull off that Cary Grant sort of tone of just, I'm going to give you some comedy, but I'm still trying to concentrate on the fact that I'm dealing with the isolation of being invisible. I, I think he does a good job with it. And the physical comedy, the thing that did make me laugh out loud is when Sam Neill's goons are, are trying to break into his apartment and he's looking for his invisible clothes and he's trying to put his arm through the jacket, that's pure Chevy Chase humor. And, and it works for that scenario and he pulls it off so effortlessly, but it doesn't detract from the thrills or the suspense that are unfolding at that moment. I actually think he's really good in this. And, I, and after this film was over, it made me think that I really would have liked to see him do more of these type of roles in the 90s versus trying to go back to like Man of the House or Cops and Robbers and stuff like that. Hey, have you ever tried to eat in the dark or put clothes on in the dark where you couldn't really see very well? Yeah. You can actually still do it because your body knows where you're, you've done it so many times that there's like this natural ability for you to be able to do it. I never understood his fumbling. It's, it's, it doesn't make any sense to me because you just naturally can do stuff like that. I know it's little, but it, to me, if I close my eyes, and I want to pick up a pen. I can pick up a pen without fumbling it because I know how long my arm is. I know how my fingers work. I know all that stuff because I've been doing it for 38 years. Like I suddenly just because I can't see it doesn't mean I just can't do it. Like to me, there's a lot of like weird stuff like that. It's like that doesn't make any sense. I think me and Brad were probably making a lot of the same notes in this movie. Because <laughs> uh, I, I, I think I think fun is where you guys go to die or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I, I can understand it. Something being physically funny. Like, like I said, the, the cab scene where he's mouthing the drunk guy's uh, mouth to take him to San Francisco. That works for me because yeah, that, that is something a great physical comedy element. But yeah, like uh, someone that is obviously of the age that Chevy Chase is like, I think being invisible and not knowing how to eat or pick up a pen or, or those, those things he's dealing with are solely there just to interject comedy because realistically, realistically, I don't think he would have that much of a problem doing that kind of thing. I don't know. I, the only thing I can think of is Chevy Chase is relying on sight and vision more so than being in the dark. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're talking about somebody who says I'm totally invisible, I can see everything else, but I can't see myself or I can't see my clothes. I totally get it. If you shut off all of your senses, 100% and go, I can't see anything. Yeah, you're going to rely on the touch and feel and you'll probably get it. But if you have guys that are coming in to capture you and you're relying on your vision while at the same, at the same time trying to get your stuff together and out the door, I buy it 100%. And I think it's funny. And Well, and that's again, the thing. Like he, he essentially doesn't lose any of his senses. He literally just can't be seen. So no, but what, what I'm saying is in Brad's analogy of getting dressed in the dark, you're relying on everything else, but sight. Mm -hmm. yeah, Just imagine for I, a second, if, if you're, if, if you don't see your arms, you don't see what you're grabbing for, but you see everything else. You see the chair, you see all this other stuff. Again, they were going to interject. The studio is sitting there going, Chevy, we need you to put some of that Chevy chase yeah. slapstick comedy. They, they do it also when that guy's trying to hail a cab and Chevy chase runs into his arm. So it's sprinkled throughout there. And that's the studio saying we need we need some Chevy Chase comedy in here. I think they made the right choices where they interjected it. Now, you, you can come back and say the cab scene, which I think is an amazing special effect. So forget the comedy for a second, but dragging that guy into a cab. And it's great editing, too, going back and forth to see Chevy 
then you mm-hmm. don't see Chevy. You see them, him moving the lips. You don't fantastic editing, fantastic special effects. That is a great aspect of the physical, physical comedy that I, I think really hits. Everything else may be a miss for some people, but those elements, I still liked it. I thought it was funny. So can I ask a question about the physics of how being invisible works? So does the suit turn invisible that he has because he was wearing it when he was turned invisible? Because some clothes that he wears, he it makes him seem, you can see him, but other times when he's wearing that one suit, he's still invisible. The initial suit that he's wearing Right. He's invisible when he's wearing that one. Is that because he was wearing that when he turned yes. invisible? That that's the interesting thing to this film that oh, hadn't been. Oh, that's done. the interesting thing. Okay, good. No, if no, you think about there. it, I don't I don't know how many invisible man films you've gone back to see, but think about the universal stuff from invisible man to invisible agent. Yeah. The thing about turning invisible was it was always your body, right? Nothing else turned invisible with you. But if you think about the premise of the film and what makes this unique is when that whatever fusion nuclear thingamajig goes off. Uh, someone spilled coffee, Troy? Yep, and we'll get to that <laughs> in a minute because obviously keyboards and, and liquids were a big problem in the 80s, 90s, I'm not sure. But you you get this great sequence where you got part of the building missing, some of it's being seen, and where it affected him, what I like about this is anything that he was wearing, it turned invisible along with him. That's a unique take that hadn't been done up to that point in 1992. Because if you think about this story of turning invisible, it was always, you know, here's a serum, here's an experiment, whatever it is, it turned me invisible, but it didn't turn anything else around me invisible. And I think it works for this film because now you get to see Chevy Chase and the editing that occurs with him in the suit. So you don't see him around running, you know, see him running around naked, although you get a couple of those sequences that are, are played for comedy. But that's a unique take on the whole Invisible Man story. Yeah, I mean, where I'm enjoying this movie is when we when when the reaction goes off, you know, from a spill of coffee on a keyboard. Uh, who knows? Um, but the aftermath of that and how the partial partial pieces of the building are invisible and other ones aren't. The the way they shoot that, the way that set is built, looks great. And that's what I'm really taking in awe from this movie is the stuff they're doing with that. And even with uh, the playfulness of Chevy Chase being visible to us as viewers, but he's meant to be invisible on on screen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and you know, we have to be able to see our hero. That's where you have a have a problem if you can't see your hero. Then you don't really have a good movie working for you. Um, unfortunately, the hero we have here, I don't find all that interesting. Like, it's not. It would be different if he, like, we say he's a bad person in this. But I don't think they give him enough in this movie to make you feel like he's gone through this drastic uh, character arc by the end of the movie. Um, That's one thing about this movie that I think is really ballsy is by the time you reach the end of this movie, you don't really have a conclusion to it. And, And that I think that partially may have came from John Carpenter, because if you watch John Carpenter movies, he has very bleak endings to the majority of his movies. And, and this movie kind of leaves leaves you in that same sort of scenario. But um, I'm just enjoying the adventure that Chevy Chase is going on um, more than I'm enjoying what Chevy is, what, what what Nick's character is learning in this movie or what he's having to, you know, what his arc is, because I don't think there's a very big one there. I, yeah, I don't know if there's an arc at all. I, I feel like it's a film where Nick 
learns to adapt to his surroundings. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, I, I know there are some scenes at the beginning that are supposed to establish him as more of somebody who's callous and just really doesn't want to get involved with anybody. Then he comes across Daryl Hannah. It's the one person he does want to become attached to. But at the end of the film, you really don't feel like Nick goes through that much change outside of the fact that he's adapted to what's happened to him. And like you said, Josh, you get to an ending where as an invisible man, he just learns to accept his new life and really make changes that fit for him and Alice, but he doesn't necessarily change as a character. I'm okay with that because I think the emphasis again is on the chase. It's on this Hitchcock light attitude of saying, well, we're going to replicate North by Northwest, but don't go too deep because we're, we're just trying to keep the movie along. Well, I'm going to make a little bit of a bold statement here. I personally think that maybe this movie was ahead of its time not necessarily a bad movie per se, but maybe let's let's look at where we are in the 80s and 90s. Like your 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 movie make your your big money makers, your hit movies. Um, we just talked about this in our last podcast that we recorded. We were talking about Batman 89. Like there are aspects of that movie that feel tacked on for purposes of solely pleasing an audience. And this movie kind of takes an opposite direction in a couple of those things, namely the ending of this movie. And, and, and also like where we are now, they do almost nothing to explain to you why we're in the situation we're in other than an accident happened. Yeah. Uh, They, they, they distinctly pointed out in the movie that they had this, none of this research had anything to do with invisibility and it's an absolute freak reaction to what has happened or, you know, we probably as a society were not we're still at that point in 1992 where we weren't receptive of a story that wasn't going to give us much whereas now you give me a movie that doesn't lay it out to me on a silver platter i eat that shit up like it's like it's candy but back in 92 your typical moviegoer and the type of you know big budget movie like this where you give us these situations and the ending that this movie gives us it's probably a lot of the reason why people were turned off by it because it doesn't go out of its way to do that for you. I agree with that. And I think that's why more people are coming back to this one, because if you look at the reviews in 92, a lot of people trash it. If you look at people who are discovering it now, I I don't necessarily agree with this where people go, you know what? It's not that bad or it's pretty good. I actually think it's a good film. I think it was a good film in 92 when I saw it in the theater, I had fun with it. I really enjoy it now. Um, Brad is is probably just dying right now. <laughs> it is a competent movie. I will absolutely give it that it is a competent movie. Uh, it, I have seen worse movies by by far. Um, it just it's one of the. I mean, it, again, like if you if you if I hadn't known John Carpenter directed this, that's the thing. That's another thing about movies in general, and just like the psychology of us as movie watchers and enjoying watching film is how, okay, if I saw this when I was 12 and loved every second of it and watched it over and over and over and over and over and over again at that time, I would probably be defending this movie to no end because I have such a nostalgic uh, uh, grasp on it, but it's not a movie that, that did that for me and watching it as an adult, I have no other choice but to pick out 
the stuff that doesn't make sense to me. Whereas I watch a movie like the thing and I'm like, Oh, aliens, that explains everything. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I don't need explanation because I'm being entertained regardless. Um, I think this movie is for me at least kind of suffers from that. Um, I, I don't have nostalgia for it. So therefore when I'm watching it as an adult, I'm just picking apart everything that, that, that I'm, I'm looking at every crack there is for it. Well, and I, I just want to preface something. I do not think this is a good film because I have nostalgic for it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good film because it's a good film. So I know you're shaking your head, Brad. Yeah, because we're <laughs> going to get to it. We're going to get to it. We we'll get, get to it. it. The, before, I, so we've been talking a lot about performances and I, I don't want to not talk about Sam Neill for a second. Sam Neill, I think, is one of the best things in this film from start to finish. He is so much fun to watch. I love his introduction where he's being interrogated by Congress. And they're going through, hey, weren't you in this country? And this guy accidentally fell to death. And he's like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And what about this country where this guy accidentally fell to his death? I love that he has that charm, that really smooth talking persona. And they're just listing all of these things that he probably did. And I feel like he's a smart villain in that that whole office sequence where Nick breaks into his office and is sitting in the corner and then because Nick stretches, all of a sudden, Sam Neill puts two and two together so quickly and goes, hey, I think he's in the office. Sam Neill is by far the most interesting character in this movie. He's the best part of the movie, hands down. I, outside of the special effects, I agree with you 100%. Outside, if, you, if you were saying, what are the two things? Yeah, he's the best performance. Mm -hmm. I agree. And he, the, the way he delivers lines, and this is a Sam Neill thing. This is the thing I've always loved about Sam Neill. But I love this line where he says, assassination is entirely ethical if you're on the right side. Mm -hmm. The way he gives that to Nick, and even another line where he says, I'm holds up really well in 2020, let me tell you. In 2021. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when he also tells his boss and says, I'm the one who kills people, not you. These are very intimidating sentences to put out there. But the way he delivers those lines and how smooth it is, you're almost like, man, I kind of like that guy. I, I wish I could be that suave and debonair to say something as you know, like assassination and and not just I, I don't know. It it well, comes out I mean, just so natural from him. That's another thing about this movie that kind of is should be a little telling to you is my favorite line from this movie comes from Sam Neill, not Chevy Chase. Um, which is 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 kind of problematic because the draw for this movie is supposed to be Chevy Chase showing yeah. his acting chops and, and kind of putting on a performance. And even though he is a comedic actor, like his comedy isn't hitting so much here as it is for like someone like Sam Neill. Um, when he is talking with the guy and they're talking about shutting down the project and everything, he tells him, I will cut your testicles off, lightly fry them and Morrissey here. will have them for lunch. Like, <laughs> I'm laughing more at Sam Neill in this movie than I am at Chevy Chase. Uh, I was still laughing at Chevy Chase. I did laugh at that line. The, the other thing I loved about Sam Neill was he really pulls off some tricky physical scenes. So the moment when Nick sort of has uh, Sam Neill with his arm behind his back, gun to the head, mm -hmm. and you get the sequence where Sam Neill has to act that out. Yeah. And I know it's a combination of special effects, but Sam Neill's performance is so good where he's basically just walking with a gun to his head and, and he has to act like somebody's got a hold of him. Right. Yeah. So I, I agree hundred percent. Sam Neill from a performance standpoint is the best thing about the film. Chevy chase. 
I still laughed at his comedy. The, the things I didn't like about Chevy Chase was maybe the things that come out from the Vanity Project standpoint. So when he has that dream sequence and he's like, yeah, hey, did you know I could play the piano? Oh, and I'm a really good tennis player. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's Chevy Chase showing off Chevy Chase stuff, not the Nick stuff. But that feels like a Fletch moment to yeah, me. Yeah, it does feel like straight like, out of Fletch. <laughs> it, it does, but Sam He's Neal... He's 6'9 with Afro. Yeah. <laughs> Sam Neal has all of that authenticity to it. And I'll, I'll tell you where my favorite line came from that made me laugh out loud. Actually came from Michael McKeon. Actually, he had two lines that I, I laughed pretty hard. And he is always in the background, right? So he's just he's a side character doesn't really do much, but when he's on, when he's on the beach with his wife and they start getting hot and heavy and obviously he finishes first and, he, and they're both laying there and he basically says, um, Hey, just, you know, give me 10 minutes, look at the moon or something. I thought that was really funny. And then when he's talking to, I think the guy's name is Richard that he brought so that Daryl Hannah could have, you know, some type of love interest. Richard you mean, says, pre- hey, you mean preppy, preppy. Yeah. Which speaking of Richard, I don't know what's more scary, that voice or his outfits with the ascot oh. and everything. <laughs> but I love this line when they're leaving and Richard goes, I'm glad you got laid. And Michael McKeon goes, it was only Ellen. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that. That was definitely one of my notes was Michael McKean and Patricia Heaton on the beach. Um, I mean, they essentially just dry humped for five seconds and he's already, already done. Like, uh, I, I found that pretty comical. Yeah, look look at the moon or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was hilarious. Brad, um, you're making all these faces. I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm just wait, I'm biding my time so I can go for jump. it. No, 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 no. We Josh and I have have totally dominated this conversation. No, go. For the it. worst part of this movie by far is the narration. Can we talk about the narration? It sucks. You don't it like the so film bad. noir? No, that's exactly what I was gonna say. No, they're the na- they're going for that film noir feel and without any sort of aesthetic or anything that's film noir yeah. though. It's like Oh, they like it. So I don't know. We're just going to try it. It, It's almost as bad as like Harrison Ford in the beginning of Blade Runner. Like it's Chevy Chase sounds like he is so disinterested in what he's saying that it's, it's really bad. It's really bad. And the other thing is, is uh, again, it's Chevy Chase and it's, it's almost like Clark W. Griswold is just complaining to us a little bit. And it, it's not Chevy Chase's fault. It's just he's a victim of circumstance because he's so good in these comedies that we fell in love with him for. And he goes to something like this where it's like, I mean, that was one of the reviewers had to say, it's like, if this movie's meant to be a drama, then why is Chevy Chase in it? And, and again, that's not his fault. We've had plenty of actors that have gone from being co- comedians to dramatic actors. Uh, I think at the time, this just was not, this was not the avenue that Chevy Chase could have taken to get out of that. I don't, I don't know if he could have taken a, an avenue to get out of it at this point. I, I feel like it's a, he's trying to do a transition film, right? So between the narration, between the dramatic elements, his chemistry with Daryl Hannah, he, he plays it serious, especially when he's walking through the club that he's hiding out in and you've got the narration. Again, I think he's a good actor, but it's not helping the case when you get Chevy Chase physical comedy elements sprinkled throughout of it. It might have been right. a better film if they had just stuck to his dry wit and left out all the physicality. Maybe the narration would have done better. I don't know. I didn't have a problem with the narration. I knew exactly what they were doing. Again, it's very Hitchcock light in its approach. The narration is going to be a part of that element. 
we'll see. I mean, maybe this is what's problematic about it is the best parts of Chevy Chase in this movie are when he's invisible. So therefore, does that negate Chevy Chase? I don't, no, I don't think the best parts are when Chevy Chase is invisible. I think I'm, he's good when you see him doing the invisible stuff. I mean, we, I, that's the thing. I mean, we, we only see him because he's our star. Um, but uh, I don't know. For me, I feel like it's best when we're getting the stuff where he is invisible and is meant to be invisible in the movie. Um, other than that, we're just, we're, we're getting Chevy Chase. And uh, again, like it's, it's just one of those, there's such a, a lack of, of a character arc there that I just have such a hard time with it. And like I said, um, if you would have cat, if this would have been, if this wouldn't have been Chevy Chase's passion project, maybe this would have been completely different. Um, but I think, uh, again, this is Chevy Chase just being a victim of circumstance and being a, co- a comedic actor in a drama where it it doesn't work well for me. And, and uh, it, hey, look, if Chevy Chase weren't involved in this, you would have got something that was like zapped with Scott Bayo and Willie Ames, and it was just that <laughs> childish sort of, I don't know, science fiction physical comedy. I, this is a Chevy Chase film. More, I agree with you. It's more a Chevy Chase film than John Carpenter and anybody else, and even the studio. And I, I like Chevy Chase in this film. Now, I will say, I agree with you that the most impressive things about this film are when Chevy Chase is invisible, and that leads us to the special effects. Yeah. So my question for you guys, this thing is littered with so many great special effects even for today's standards i think really hold up and this is 1992 do you guys have a favorite sequence or special effect brad anything i just the building when you see like the building like broken up and stuff like that 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 to me stood out was just such a cool kind of set piece that i i don't know that that one had the most lasting effect on me just because the way it looked and I, i don't know and then it kind of disappears um some of the other stuff like with when she puts makeup on him and you kind of only see half the face and stuff like that, that stuff didn't age as well. Like the teeth don't age as well, but I think the building still kind of holds up pretty well in 2021. So that was kind of my favorite just because of, of how it held up. What about you, Josh? Everything they do with the like wardrobe and all of that, that is supposed to be on this invisible body. Like when he's got all the stuff wrapped uh, wrapped around him at the beach house and all of that, and she like you have a scene where Daryl Hannah Daryl Hannah is talking to him, and he's got a towel wrapped around him because he doesn't want her to see him eating because you can see the process. So when they've got those kind of things, like with the sheet draped over an invisible man, I think that stuff works really well, and they put a lot of time and effort because some of that stuff is very flawless. There's even a scene where the goons are chasing him down a hall, and they grab the pants as he's taking them off. Oh, in the, the park. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. And the way, the way he kind of runs out of it and the, the pants fall, like it looks like they're pulling pants off of an invisible person. Like that stuff works really well. Um, I really love the building too, Brad. Um, that was what, that was the first thing in this movie um, that when I was watching it, I did not remember it from the movie from, from watching it as a kid. And when I saw it, I was like, Whoa, that looks freaking good. Well, yeah, I was amazed like for- how they did that. Yeah, because like for me, this movie was losing me pretty quickly at the beginning. And then that building comes around and I'm like, oh, okay, like we're going to go down this maybe science fiction rabbit hole a little bit. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, sadly, we don't. But, you know, that was like the first part of the film where I kind of propped up a little bit. It was like, oh, okay, here we go. And And and, then then I didn't do it again. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, Anything with him getting wet, like the raindrop scene. Yeah. 
or when he washes the the make off off at the end with the with the the truck that's driving by that stuff looks really good like that is stuff i would put on par like with the the most recent invisible man movie like that stuff looks great especially for, for 92 sure. Yeah. Well, the the smoke sequence I really liked, not just the smoke filling up in the lungs, but when it mm-hmm. blows out and you see just hi- really highlights or an outline of his face within the smoke as it's kind of going up his face. Yeah. Those little elements are are fantastic. The the food sequence, I think a lot of people talk about, it looks okay in today's standards. It doesn't hold up as well, I think, as the building, the smoke effects, the water effects. I, I'm really glad you talked, Josh, about the the clothes so even mm-hmm. the last sequence where he's skiing and and you get her taking the goggles off or something and you you really get the element of a full face underneath the bandages or the mask or anything else it's just missing yeah eyes right the face i think they did all of those practical effects really well mm-hmm. and i absolutely love that sequence of him using the drunk to hail a cab to get in yep. there and I'll say this, as good as the special effects are, I think the editing is just as good as well. Because yes. the special effects really only work in the context of this because they keep going back between seeing Chevy Chase and then not seeing Chevy Chase and seeing sort of the physical world itself. I think the, the editing really helps that out. What really works for me also and what really blows me away is all of the um, in-camera prop work they're doing with Chevy Chase being visible on screen but being invisible in a, in a reflection or in a mirror or when he, when he has Sam Neill, he's taken Sam Neill hostage out of the building, that gun being against Sam Neill's head. I, as an adult watching a movie, wondering how they're doing this stuff and looking for every little nook and cranny I can to find out how they did that. And I, I did not see where they had anything applied to Sam Neill or any kind of a head thing uh, like put on him with the gun against his head, like all that stuff looks great. Anything in camera with, with a prop, they are putting a lot of time and effort to make sure it looks flawless. And that stuff works really well. Like that's where this movie shines for me. Absolutely. I, I really think Carpenter was having some fun with this film, even though he's working for a studio dealing with Chevy Chase, Daryl Hannah, which he obviously didn't like doing, but we, we talked about the Hitchcock elements that pop up there are a lot of elements to other films in here. There's a, there's a great nod to the universal invisible man. When Daryl Hannah sees him at the beach house, you get the full classic invisible man outfit with the bandages, mm-hmm. the bathrobe and the goggles. I love the fact that Sam Neill is basically talking to him about what would happen in world war II if you were there to kill Hitler, et cetera. Again, it's a, it's a nod to invisible agent, which I think was in 1942, Mm-hmm. So the other thing I like about this film is outside of the Hitchcock references and the things that are sprinkled throughout, you are getting some nods to the classic Invisible Man series as well. So I, I think that's where the Carpenter stuff comes in. He he obviously is a film lover. Mm-hmm. He's watching, you know, all these other movies. He's sprinkling in the references. And he even says when he chooses a script, he's got to find something that he's interested in in order for him to spend that time to him. I think it does come down to the special effects and his ability to try and do something that mimics Hitchcock light. Again, don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I think that's all over this thing. Yeah. Let's talk about the music. So this is a score that was not done by John Carpenter. Shirley Walker did it. What's interesting about this is the soundtrack by Shirley Walker was the first major Hollywood studio picture with a complete orchestral score written by a woman. So 
there's a little information that you can use on trivia night. What did you think about the score or was it memorable? Not for me. Not for me. Nope. It, when I was listening to it, the first thing that popped in my head was this feels like something that would show up in a forties, fifties adventure film or a Hitchcock film. Mm -hmm. That's where I think again, John Carpenter studio, whoever made that final decision actually made a good choice. I couldn't imagine this movie with a John Carpenter score. I think Shirley Walker score is actually pretty good, but it harkens back to again, something that you might find in North by Northwest. It's got that orchestral sound to it. It feels like a, a fifties adventure film it's serviceable. It's, it's not something that's going to make me go out and buy the soundtrack or anything, but I, I think it works in light of this, but I, I just could not imagine John Carpenter doing the score to this film. Yeah. It, it, this movie doesn't seem like a vehicle for him to shine in, in the musical department. But then again, like, I don't know, like big trouble in little China doesn't feel like a Carpenter score to me, but it absolutely is. Um, it's so different from what he did in the, you know, the early eighties going into the late, but big trouble in little China doesn't need a, a synth score. It needs the score that it, that it's got. It needs that bravado to it. Um, this movie again, like the score for this seems something more in line with like a ghostbusters picture or something like that. Something that emphasizes what you're seeing on screen. And I guess I can kind of liken John Carpenter directing this to like someone like Kevin Smith directing an episode of the flash or Supergirl or something like that. Like the direction here is good. He, he did very well with the, the visual effects and all of the direction of this movie. It just doesn't feel like his movie. And that's kind of, maybe I'm knocking this movie because of that, but I mean, that's, that's kind of what I'm wanting out of a John Carpenter directed movie is a John Carpenter movie. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I can't blame him for taking a chance and going with a studio film to do something different, but you can tell that there wasn't a lot of him making the calls on a lot of this stuff either. No, he's, he was not in control at all. He is having to deal with his actors. He's having to deal with the studio. I think it's fair to say if, if you didn't know that John Carpenter had directed it by looking at the titles or, you know, reading about it, you might not figure it out to be a John Carpenter film. I think there are traces of John Carpenter throughout the film, but it's not front and center in terms of style, cinematography, music, all the things that we love about John Carpenter films. Those aren't front and center in this. Again, it's more of a Chevy Chase vehicle. This is his least favorite film. If you, if you read anything about John Carpenter, he, he doesn't like it. He called Chevy Chase a director's worst nightmare and nearly impossible to direct. Also saying the same thing about Daryl Hannah. He didn't like them as well. Chase would complain nonstop about the film's tone, hated wearing the special effects. Apparently he ruined a lot of shots by just taking, mm -hmm. you know, the outfits or whatever he that he needed to wear for a particular scene. He would just get upset with it because of all the heat from the lamps, everything else. He just got fed up, walked off. Did he have to wear like those blue contacts too? So I'm sure yeah, you know, it's probably not the easiest thing in the world. I'm not, defending Chevy Chase by all means, but I'm sure it wasn't easy, but I'm sure he didn't have to act like a baby either. Yeah. I, again, it's weird because I find it odd. Daryl Hannah, Chevy Chase get along. Great. I think that comes through on the screen studio back them more so than anybody else. Screenwriter directors. They weren't going to back John Carpenter. John Carpenter knew that and was just keeping things together. I really think, I really feel like John Carpenter needs his people in order to make his movie. And when he doesn't have his people, he may not be the best type of director. 
And again, not a slam against John Carpenter. When I met him, I liked him, et cetera. But if you have an auteur and somebody with that type of talent and they're not in full creative control, I think they're always going to be at odds with the film that they're making. So I, I don't see John Carpenter as a great studio pick. I think he's a great independent filmmaker who happened to get some money from a studio and made some classics like Big Trouble in Little China and The Thing. But he's always in his element when he has full creative control. And really, I think he's in his element when he's dealing with a smaller budget. Right. Uh, he, he's very comfortable making a, a dime go a dollar's length. Like, and, and yeah, I mean, again, we're not, we're, he's not dealing with any of his typical cast here. Like we've talked about already. I mean, he's responsible for making a lot of our big Hollywood stars stars because he works with them independently. They go on to be big Hollywood stars. Um, he's dealing with people here and that's probably why he and Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah did not get along is because they're already in a caliber of actor that he's not worked with. Um, you know, he, he's dealing with people who have reputations and are used to working with particularly spirited actors or uh, directors. And maybe he doesn't know how to handle that, but I, I don't think he loses the movie by any means. Like, like I said, I think his direction here works and it, this is not a bad movie. It's not, I mean, I don't think it's a, a piece of garbage. Uh, it's definitely not John Carpenter's worst movie either. Um, if you've seen the ward, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> I, I think he may even have a couple others that are not as good as this. Also, like uh, a lot of people will probably argue ghost of Mars is not as good as this movie is. I, I, I personally like ghost of Mars. I think it's really cheesy and I love that, that, that it is cheesy and that's why I like it. Um, vampires. It, Would you do vampires over? Oh, vampires is one of, I mean, like, we talked top five, like vampires would probably be in my top <laughs> 10. I love that movie. It's, it's, it's such a different take on vampires. So, I mean, you know, like I said, I, I enjoyed watching this movie. I just, as a John Carpenter fan, it, it, it doesn't feel like a John Carpenter movie. Therefore I'm kind of watching it through that lens. And, but I mean, like I said, if, if I had no idea, I'd probably feel differently, but still like, I don't, I don't see this movie being on my top 10 list for 1992 by any means either. So, but I mean, it's a fun watch. I, I, I enjoyed watching it. I will watch it again. Um, but there are just certain aspects of it that work for me and certain aspects that don't. Brad, I feel like too much positive comments have flown through this discussion. What, what would you like to pick apart? I, I know you don't like this film. No. And then ultimately I think one of my notes just said, I find this film completely and utterly joyless. Really? I think that's yes. Is there any happiness or joy really at all? In this movie that that brings up the ending to the movie like that's another thing i do like about it and it comes from being a john carpenter fan is it not only does it not give us any information throughout the movie it does nothing to solving our problem in this movie either at the end of this movie you still have chevy chase as an invisible man uh with with no no real kind of regard for how he's ever gonna go back to being normal he probably never will no um, but having to continue his life as an invisible person I think that throws a lot of things at the, at, at the end of this movie that you're going, Holy crap. Like, did they really just leave me with that? No. I, and I like the ambiguity and I like, trust me, I like half empty. Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. I'm talking more about like just the people involved seem to be utterly joyless while everything else is going on in this movie. Like they're just, you get those vibes and you can almost feel 
the tension when you watch this movie like you've got a point like if this really was a passion project for 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 chevy chase like why does he feel so like i like you're saying and maybe how i feel as well like why does he feel kind of utterly joyless in this movie to me like yeah because i think that's what he's going for the the whole thing that attracted him to this is he looked at the source material and said here's a book about a guy who goes invisible and it's really about the loneliness and the isolation that comes with that and so chevy chase looks at that and says that's what i want to portray i think it, some scenes come off as more angry than versus depressed but that's the thing i like about it that's why i would have liked to have seen chevy chase do more of this the joy it's not joyless you I, i'm gonna disagree with you 100 there okay that's fine. The, the joy i think comes from the interaction with him and daryl hannah but they don't do enough of it what is overshadowed is all the things that you guys are talking about in terms of here's an event that shouldn't have happened turn him invisible the only thing that he wins out of it is the fact that the Sam Neill character isn't chasing him anymore by the end of the film. That's it. But he's still left with this condition and he just has to adapt to it. How he adapts to it is to cling on to the thing that does give him joy, which is that relationship with Daryl Hannah. But you spend a good, what, 80, 90% of the film with him really wrestling with this, I don't know, extremity that's been you know forced upon him and him having to deal with that isolation and, hey, I can't eat without a, you know, bed sheet covered over me. He's, he's eating clear liquids, all this other stuff. Well, I won't fault the movie, this particular movie for this, because they do this a lot. And in, in even even modern movies, uh, not so much even just the 80s or 90s, but to, to lead me to believe that he and Daryl Hannah would have fallen in love like they do on screen in this movie is highly implausible to me. Um, there's a lot more that comes with that in my opinion, but that is a very common trope within screenwriting is you have two characters that meet each other and fall in love. And that's that. And that's your drive through the entire movie. I don't feel like Daryl Hannah and, and Chevy Chase's relationship in this movie constitutes where they end up because I don't feel like, like why would he confide in her all of this information? He just met her and slept with her one time. Like, Dude, go back and watch the movies from the 40s where you have your protagonist meet the girl and then one day later they're like, hey, let's get married. So well, and, and that's, that exactly, that's exactly yes. what I'm saying. Like <laughs> yeah. uh, that trope has been around in movies forever. So I'm not knocking this movie for portraying that. I'm just saying like that's another thing this movie is suffering from for, for, for me. It, it, and that and that yeah. husband owned that wife, Troy. I mean, that's how it was. <laughs> no, how different it was. <laughs> but again, it, it's one of those where you can look at a film like this and I'll, I'll reference your latest film that you're talking about or the one that I just listened to, Josh, which is Tremors. Mm -hmm. And I know you had a lot of problems with that. And I, I know Jason and Eric were kind of giving you a hard time by just saying, okay, Josh, what's your agenda for picking apart this film? <laughs> but I know you love Tremors. You still like that film. Mm -hmm. This is one of those movies, and I think it's any movie, right? If you get into science fiction, you get into this type of realm, you're going to tell a story for an hour and a half. When you go big and you're going to a grand scale of things and you get into these adventure films, at the end of the day, you can pick this thing apart and go, the science doesn't work. I mean, hold on a second. What triggers this event is a guy spills water or coffee on a keyboard, and all of a sudden you have an entire <laughs> nuclear meltdown. 
that's, we're, that clo- we're that close. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't know if that's why we now have keyboards that are separated from the desktop as a result of that <laughs> happening a lot in the eighties. But I feel like the technology was a bit wonky in that time period. If that's exactly what causes, you know, this, this big nuclear friction reaction thingy, whatever the science is. So here's the thing, this film either works or it doesn't. And I think it works if you buy into the performances, if you invite buy into the adventure, if you can get caught up into the special effects. And if you're having a good time, you'll, you'll put all that stuff on hold. And that's any film. I don't think you can look at a movie and say that outside of documentaries, but even documentaries have this problem in terms of storytelling, nothing fires a hundred percent on all cylinders. And when it does, it's your all time classic. 90% of the films you can tear apart. I don't care what kind of film it is. Ultimately, it comes down to what your taste is. If if you're along for the ride and the adventure, you're going to have fun with it. If you can pick apart it and still enjoy it, cool. Um, if you can't get beyond its shortcomings, it's just a bad movie for you. True. I, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, and I, you know, I even said, I, mean, I, I don't feel like this is a bad movie per se, um, but I, I can definitely see, I can feel Brad's, um, sense of no, no enjoyment here. I, it just feels like that to me. Um, I, I don't know. And I can't even really pinpoint why it is. I mean, Chevy Chase, by all means, giving the performance that he does, if you love Chevy Chase, you should love what he's doing here. I just, I don't know. There's a lot to it that just kind of rubs me a little, a little, a little bit the wrong way. Um, but again, I mean, I'm a sucker for movies. This, like I said, is not something that I would, throw in the garbage after watching I, I would definitely revisit and that's usually when I find a movie that I end up loving even more is when I go back and watch it over and over again even like there's plenty of movies that I absolutely did not like at all the first time I saw them and said they've become some of my favorite movies Pulp Fiction by like oh 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 wait look uh, there's a golden rule for anybody who comes on the show. We say nothing negative about Pulp Fiction or Brad will have a coronary. I'm not going to say anything negative about Pulp Fiction, but I will say in 1994, when I saw Pulp Fiction, I never saw anything like it and did not understand it. Therefore, I was like, what the hell am I watching? Oh, that's fair. Okay. So, but now like, yeah, like Pulp Fiction, while it's not my favorite movie in the world, it definitely is up there. Um, you'll have a hard time changing my mind on that one. But I mean, there's a whole story that goes along with that. We could do three podcasts talking about that. So I won't, I won't even go down that road. It won't be on this show. It, it was critically loved and financially loved. So mm-hmm. it won't ever show up on a podcast called Not a Bomb. It'll show up on mine one day. I guarantee you that. You better have Brad on. <laughs> and I told this is the thing I love about Brad and why I probably couldn't do this type of thing like a podcast with most people, I mean, Brad brings a view to a film that I usually don't see. And, and even the last movie we talked about, which was Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. I'm coming at that thing with a bit of a positive spin. And even the person who recommended it, Randy, uh, he had sent uh, some email and, and text to me as well and said, hey, I, I love Brad. I'm in his corner. It's a bleak ending. And what I love about that is the more you read about a film like bad lieutenant you're going to get all these different variations of was there a positive um ending to it did did it have a happy ending was it extremely morbid was it a futile gesture anything of that nature and brad always grounds me 
because as much as I can take something like memoirs and invisible man and go, I can defend this sucker till I'm blue in the face. I know Brad can look at it and go, man, I can't get over these things. And I can't fault him for that because everything that he's saying, he's a hundred percent correct on in terms of this doesn't work, but it doesn't work because again, comedy specifically is subjective. So you either laugh or you don't. Right. I mean, comedy film just uh, your taste yeah. everyone's taste are subjected to them as a person so i think that makes for good conversation and that's what i like about not agreeing on something like this is you know you can enjoy it for your reasons i can enjoy it for mine and brad cannot enjoy it for his yeah that's <laughs> why i love doing dario Argento episodes because brad has a meltdown and it's like my favorite episodes i we mean ever if do, i want to so. watch north by northwest why don't i just go watch north by northwest it's a thousand times better than this movie Right. I don't disagree with you. It's, yeah. it's a classic, but I, yeah. I love this. It's okay. again, I don't want, sometimes I want junk food and, yeah. and even here, I don't even, I, I feel like junk food is almost a put down for this film by saying it doesn't have quality or merit or strong performances or anything of that nature. I, I think it's a great adventure film. I have a lot of fun with it. And every time I watch it, I feel like I laugh a little bit more because I catch a line or see something I didn't uh, pick up on. Is, is it Big Trouble in Little China? Absolutely not. So if somebody were to come to me and go, oh, Big Trouble in Little China is a stupid film. No, absolutely not. I I can not agree with that perception. So yeah, somebody, I think, yeah, like that's the common theme between all three of us. I think all of us would probably defend that movie to our grave. Yeah, and if, if somebody goes, well, I really didn't like Memoirs of Invisible Man, I'd be like, yeah, okay, that's cool. Yeah. I, I get it. I, I will go, like, I will give you guys a little bit of a, a heads up, like, it's nowhere near on our roster at this point, but I will go ahead and let you all know to tune in to when we talk about Jurassic Park, because that movie is held in such a high regard and I have so many negative things to say about it. I do not hold that movie in very high regard and it's going to be a conversation that might spark some controversy, but like I'm ready to have that conversation. Um, and, but that's why I like doing this. Yeah, I like throwing why I don't like something out there and kind of talking about why you why other people do. And and sometimes that can change people's opinion. And again, like I had so many problems uh, watching the thing and, and poking all these holes and what was going on. But when I sit down and talk to people about it, I have a different opinion now. And it's not to say that I thought the thing was a bad movie, but by no means did I think that but like, when I'm poking holes in something and then I'm having a conversation with people and they're filling in those holes for me, that's what I love. I mean, that's, oh, but I, I mean, and, and <laughs> it seems like you weren't able to do that with me on this particular movie, Troy, <laughs> but um, well, I, I'm not here to change anybody's <laughs> minds. Again, if, if you like it, great. I've, I've learned after decade plus of being with Brad, you, you just don't change people's <laughs> minds, but half the fun of it is sharing your opinion, right? Yeah, absolutely. So any final thoughts on this one before we get to the big question, Brad, anything else you want to throw in? I said enough. All right, Josh, any, any other <laughs> final notes? I don't think so. I think we've kind of touched on everything I made notes about. Um, yeah, I mean. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with you, Josh, the big question for a podcast called not a bomb is, did John Carpenter in 1992 make a bomb with Chevy Chase called Memoirs of an Invisible Man? I, I absolutely think he he made a bomb with this one for sure. So you're putting in the bomb category. Okay. It's going in the bomb category. Brad, do I even have to ask you? Is Of course is, he did. Of course he did. He made a bomb. 
I'm outnumbered on this one. John Carpenter did not make a bomb. I think this is a fun adventure film. Again, if you like something that is going to touch on maybe the adventure elements or thriller elements that you might find in something like North by Northwest, Vertigo, it's a good film. Is it your classic John Carpenter? Absolutely not. Is it a classic Chevy Chase? Absolutely not. But those are the things that I like about it. And I really, I can't say this enough. I, I really think Chevy Chase is good in this. And I would have liked to have seen him do more of these type of films, uh, especially in the 90s. I, I mean, I, I'm throwing it in the bomb category, but I can't fault John Carpenter for it being a bomb. Um, I, I can't put that ball in his court. I think there were a lot of moving parts here that caused it to, to become the bomb that I think it is. Um, I just think John Carpenter picked a wrong project here that's that's kind of where i land on it so okay well brad that was a great conversation we actually <laughs> got some email from a few listeners do we want to share that yeah we got some suggestions um the first one comes from ben um hey bomb squad ben here want to make a quick suggestion for a bomb oh boy uh southland tales um <laughs> i found people really love or hate this movie i can already foresee troy defending this movie as brad has a complete meltdown this is a richard kelly that's richard kelly right donnie darko yes. yeah yeah i've never seen cast, that the cast of this movie is pretty good it's got the rock justin timberlake i think is in it and yep sarah michelle geller yes okay isn't there a 4k of uh, uh, uh arrow 4k coming out for yeah that? the end of the month i've already pre-ordered it <laughs> It's it's the that is a great suggestion. And are we going to talk about it? I'm pretty sure that's going to be in the cards. So yes. yeah, and I you might be right on that one. We'll see, but I can't wait to talk about it. So it's, it's a good recommendation, Ben. I I think uh, we might definitely see that one probably sooner than later. We well, if also you guys, if you guys do when you guys do do that, I'll actually sit down and watch it so that way I can follow along when you guys do it. Perfect. Awesome. So we also got an email from our good friend, Nick. Hi guys, it's me again. Hope you're both doing well, keeping safe. So the reason I'm messaging you guys again is because Troy at the end of the beast and just for everybody, if you go back and listen to the beast, it's the first movie that we did in 2021 that was recommended by Nick. So Troy at the end of the beast episode asked me if I had any other beauties in my pocket. So I have whittled it down to two and it's possible. Of course, you guys might not be able to fit these in this month which is fine if that's the case. If you could keep them at the front of the queue for when you next do a listener month, that would be great and much appreciated. So the first one is, and I'm going to stick with the 80s, Costa Gavras Missing from 1982, starring Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek. The thing I'll say about this film is, and trust me, this won't ruin it for you, the events depicted in this film are based on the military coup led by General Pinochet in Chile circa 1972-73. The other film is Bob Fosse's last film, Star 80 from 1983. Both of these films are based on real events and both left me very sad and pretty shaken up. I can't guarantee that you'll both love these films as much as The Beast. That film is utterly unique. I agree 100% with you, Nick. It's a one in a million find that I had a strong feeling was objectively good and could be recommended to just about anyone. But I think you'll both still get a hell of a lot out of these films and probably Troy having to do more homework again. Well, thanks, Nick. I love my homework. So keep up the good work. Stay safe. What a nerd. And all God. the best, Nick. Those are great have, recommendations. I haven't seen either of those films. I have actually seen Star 80. Is it um, good? Was it as it, good as Nick says? 
Well, I mean, this is another one that I saw as a kid, and it's definitely not a movie a kid should be watching by any means. Yeah, what were you, what were you doing? <laughs> um, this I is love a, that you've seen that, but you haven't seen like the James Bond films prior to View to a Kill, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, this is a this is a story about uh, I can't remember the names. I just remember the details, but it's a Playboy mo- a model mm-hmm. from Canada who who made it big. Um, posing for playboy and getting uh, kind of becoming a star there and her dorothy boy- stratton yeah stratton? dorothy stratton yeah and uh her and, and this it, it kind of tells the story of her and her controlling boyfriend throughout this endeavor uh where she's becoming famous and he's kind of along for the ride it goes to very bleak places and it's it's a hell of a movie and i'd love to rewatch that one at some point just to kind of get a, a different take on it especially being older because i think the last time i saw it i probably was in my teens wow well those are those all three of those movies are great picks southland tales missing and star 80 brad's uh giving me a look on southland tales but this leads us into something we're doing this week so we got to talk about a chevy chase film and our good friend i don't know if anybody really scours the internet for movie reviews i do and there's are very few people that I would say that I agree with 90% of the time. Actually, the only one I can think of is over at the aisle seat, aisleseat.com, and it's done by Mike McGrennan. He's written a couple of books, and one of those books is called My Year of Chevy, One Guy's Journey Through the Filmography of Chevy Chase. So what we did is we love Mike so much, we decided that we really feed off of all of the listener requests and recommendations. And I've got two copies of Mike's book. It is a great book. I read this a while ago. He has another one straight up blatant. And it's a lot of essays and stuff about various films. Go check that one out too. Heck, we might give that one away in the future. But here's the deal. If anybody wants to recommend bombs for us to review, we've got two copies of this book. And what we're going to do is we're going to take all of the recommendations that come in this week. And Nick and Ben, we're going to put yours in the hat. And Brad and I are each going to choose one to do in March. And whichever film that we pick from the recommendation, we're going to send you a copy of this book. Uh, Again, it's my year of Chevy, one guy's journey through the filmography of Chevy Chase. Basically, Mike went and watched all the Chevy Chase films and wrote essays on each one of them. It is a fun read. So if you're interested in sending us your recommendations and winning a book, U.S. residents only. Sorry, guys. If you're listening to us outside of the country, we're only going to do postage for those. Podcasts think that's successful. Can't yeah, do I mean, it's a little out of pocket. But Brad, how do they get recommendations to us so that they can win this awesome book? Uh, if you want to send it just old-fashioned email, it's uh, notabombpod at gmail.com. You can also go to our website and hit the contact us button and go through the little form there and you can send in a suggestion that way. Awesome. And heck, if you list something, a uh, recommendation, on any of our social media pages. So we've got stuff on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll throw it in the hat. We just got to make sure we get your email if you win. And Josh, you can win this too. So you picked a, in my opinion, an (laughs) awesome film with memoirs and invisible man. So if you want to throw something else in there, we'll, we'll put you in there as well. Cool. Josh, you want to give everybody. Hey, what what about, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh yeah. Go pump the brakes, buddy. You got the brakes. Uh Go for it. Next week. Next week. Yes. Are we going to talk about next week? I was going to let Josh talk oh, about okay. his stuff before we go to next week. I wasn't okay. going to the end. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, Josh, no. 
Josh, no, you're, the, you're the host. You're the host. Go ahead. We are the host. This is co-hosting. I'm just trying to be polite and let Josh go first before we talk about okay. your pick because I know it's all about you, Brad, mm-hmm. and you had to spend a couple hours talking about a movie you didn't like. So <laughs> I apologize, Josh. It's you. Go ahead. I want. We want to hear about VHS files. You can find us on at VHS Files Podcast on all the social media. Uh, you can get us at the VHS Files Podcast wherever you find your podcast. Our Batman 89 episode will be hitting the airwaves this coming Friday. We had a long discussion about that one, and it was fun. Our buddy Nathan from Two Drinks and a Haunting Podcast came on and talked about it with us. So we had a lot of fun recording that. And we will actually be doing a listener questions episode uh, here in the next few days, and that'll be coming out shortly too. So if you... Anybody listens to our podcast and would like to submit some questions for us to answer on air, go ahead and send them our way at VHS Files Podcast on all the social media. And uh, we'd be happy to answer any kind of movie questions you guys have. And we're very excited about that one because we typically just pick a movie and talk about it. And that's that. We're finally getting to some listener stuff. So we're excited to answer some questions for people. Well, I I sent a question in on my favorite film that Mm -hmm. you've done. So it's probably top three for me, Die Hard, which... Look, folks, if you're going to go back and, and listen to VHS files, go right to the Die Hard episode. That, that was, was a fantastic. Fun it was amazing. Such a good episode. And I can't thank you enough for coming on here, Josh. We're definitely having you on again. It is so much fun. I'm glad you picked this one. We got to talk about Chevy Chase. We'll, we'll talk about John Carpenter in detail when we get to some of his other bigger bombs. But um, again, tell everybody at the VHS files family, we love them. It's such a super podcast. And and hopefully we can get some others uh, on there. I think um, maybe Eric, Jason, anybody. Yeah, I've, I've, I've relayed to them that you guys would probably reach out to him. And I think Eric said uh, Brad reached out to him about possibly being on the show. Yep. Eric's a, a little bit of a busy guy, but I know he loves to talk movies. So you, you'll probably rope him into coming on at some point, but it's just going to be uh, working through his schedule. He's a pretty busy man. So we're lucky we get him when we, when we do, but I'm sure he'd love to come on and talk with you guys and Jason as well. So my wife, I consider it lucky that I get her on on our podcast. So I'm not sure how she'd do going on a guest as somebody else's, but oh, we're, um, we're going to get her on here so she can give us all the dirt about you. So yeah, we're going to talk about you behind your back. Yeah, it's going to be fun, <laughs> and we're going to air it on the internet. Okay, but, but so th- th- thank you guys for having me on. I mean, I, I appreciate you guys letting me come on and talk movies with you. I I find any opportunity I can to talk movies with people. I love it. So thank you so much for having me on. I'm I'm honored to be here. Anytime you guys ask me. Oh, we're going to ask you a lot, man. This is a blast. <laughs> Brad, oh my gosh. We we talked to, we talked about a film, and uh, it was my pick. Actually, it was Josh's pick, but I let yeah. Josh pick for my pick. So who are you letting pick for your pick? Uh, this is, um, I believe this is John's wife, Mia. Is that her name? Yes. Not Mia Wallace, but um, close enough. She suggested that we watch Serenity from 2004 which is i guess considered like a space western um it is the conclusion of a tv show from 2002 called firefly so troy and i got our workout work cut out for us because we are going to try and watch all the firefly and then serenity so you guys have never seen firefly or serenity i have seen both a long time ago i've never i've never seen either of them myself so i think i saw serenity in the theaters and then was like, oh, that's a TV show called Firefly. And then went back and watched Flat So I think I saw it in reverse. But I'm going to try and do it right this time and watch the TV show first and then get to the film. 
See, that's one of those, that's one of those like pop culture phenomenons that I feel like I, I passed by. And like, if I go back and watch it now, I just, I won't like it because of the fact that it's passed me by, but maybe one day I'll go back and check it out. But yeah, I, I haven't checked those out. The, the timing's good because I hear that Disney plus is going to do a new series based on that material. Is that right? I have no idea. I'm okay, sure. Well, Disney Plus is probably doing a series on everything. So this yeah, podcast right at some point in time will be a Disney property. So. <laughs> oh man, I hope so. If they keep doing stuff like the Mandalorian, I'm there. So Absolutely. Well, that's a great pick, Mia. I'm excited to watch it. And like Brad said, we're going to try and get through all of the episodes. I think there are 12 of them. Wow, we do have our work cut out for us. Plus a movie, <laughs> plus homework. Oof. And I, I'm not reading the comics or anything else that's mm. associated with it. It's going to be... Okay. Go you down say the rabbit now. hole. You say I that know. now. Troy. I say that now, and then I'm up till two in the morning doing that stuff. Okay. Whoa. Anything else? What Brad, are we, did... is in this? Okay. Okay. Here we go. Okay. We're, 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 okay. Anything else <laughs> that we're forgetting in terms of the stuff we do at the end of the show? Oh, I'm going to be on um, Friends with Cinefits talking about Akira with uh, with Alex. Um, we're recording that later this week, so it'll be out um, probably over the weekend. So look for that. Yeah. Awesome. Brad, I can't wait to hear you talk about Akira. And it's something that I think Alex hasn't seen before, correct? Yeah, yeah. And I've seen it a gazillion 25 times. 25 times, maybe. Oh, <laughs> so, you're just being humble. Yeah. Jo- what, Josh, you haven't seen Akira? I have not seen Akira. Oh, well, if you're going to play along, you got to watch Akira. Yeah. It- <laughs> mm. I, anime is a forte that I have not delved down. Like, I've seen a couple. Um, I don't know. I it's only considered like the best anime film of all time. You yeah, know, I know. <laughs> I actually, I actually did turn it on one time, but for whatever reason, had to had to not continue watching it and have never gone back to it. I don't know what it is about anime, but it never it never grabs hold of me until I try and until I force myself to watch to watch it. So, well, there's a there's a new 4K out from Funimation. Don't buy it. Wait till February because apparently the 4K that's out now is not in HDR. And they are going to release a new version. Yeah, we've got to send emails to them to get them to send the disc. Yeah, so that's fun. But hey, if if you're going to play along, watch Firefly, watch Serenity, watch Akira, and uh, I th- watch I think Batman '89. Watch Batman '89 for Friday. Hey, yeah. folks, you got a lot of stuff to do this week. I I hope you're not working, and this is a whole vacation week for you. So <laughs> I'm moving to Georgia. So yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> awesome, man. So listen, if you want to read. Um, my year of Chevy for free. Don't forget, send us your bombs, email them to us or go to our website and there's a little, uh, you know, submit page and we'll get it that way. But um, Brad, Josh had a blast tonight. Thank you guys both for showing up and talking little John Carpenter, Chevy Chase, Daryl Hannah. Folks, I don't know if it's in the morning, afternoon or evening. Thanks for downloading, playing along, listening. I hope you have an awesome day. Thank you. 